Sports World in Sports. Be great. Let's be great. An entertaining and provocative look into the world of sports and beyond. Play our game. All right. Please feel free to go over to Apple iTunes and rate and review. Your feedback is welcome. Go rock this thing, huh? Love you, man. Go get it. And now, the host of the program from the Washington, D.C. metropolitan area, Wendell Wallace. Possibly amigos, me llamo a Wendell Wallace, Wendell's World of Sports, so glad that you could be with us. Bonjour, bonsoir, monsieur, mademoiselle. Je m'appelle Wendell Wallace, Wendell's World of Sports, so glad that you could be with us. Shalom, wassalam alaikum, konnichiwa, namaste. Wendell's World of Sports, so glad that you could be with us. A lot of things to discuss today. In the World of Sports, special dedication going out to Jose Feliciano, starting off the podcast, his rendition of the Star Spangled Banner, the first artist to kind of go astray from the t- traditional way of the way the anthem was sung. That was before Game 5 of the 1968 World Series. Ernie Hardwell, the broadcaster for the Tigers, was in charge of uh, the musical entertainment, i.e. the uh, singing of the national anthem. So Game 2, I believe, that he got Marvin Gaye, who was told to sing it straight, i.e. sing it white, which he did. Then uh, he got Jose Feliciano, and to his credit, Harwell was like, hey man, you know what, I heard the way that you uh, played it, loved it, do it that way, go ahead and do it that way. Jose did, Ernie Harwell almost got fired, Uh, Feliciano was uh, basically blackballed for uh, almost a decade because of the way that he sang that song, he was being called a communist, and Horrible rendition, and veterans were throwing bricks and shoes at their TV screen while he was hearing it. If you watch the video of him singing, you'll see all the old white folks in the background and the looks that they have on their face while he was singing it like, 
is this clown serious? What the hell is going on with this? But uh, wonderful, wonderful rendition. That and the 1983 version uh, sung by Marvin Gaye at the All-Star Game. Those are my two favorites. In fact, I know the Star Spangled Banner uh, word for word. And the only way I learned how to uh, learn the words were because of the uh, versions done by Marvin Gaye, the legendary, the great Marvin Gaye, and the legendary and great Jose Feliciano. So I thought for starting off the podcast, I'd give you a little bit of flavor, such such like that, just in case you never heard it. Wendell's World of Sports, the podcast, so glad that you could be with us. Yours truly, Wendell Wallace. Today, got some good stuff to get into, man. We got some NFL news we want to get into. Very quickly before I start, I just want to give a shout out to uh, not only Serena Williams, but Naomi Osaka. Um... Man, I want to go into this a little bit more on my next podcast until I get a little bit more time to marinate and think about it because the tennis match was on a little bit late last night and then I was watching the uh, NBA games and I still have the uh, league pass so I wanted to watch the Hawks and the Celtics, which I did, and I wanted to watch uh, the uh, late game, the Warriors and the Heat, and I also wanted to watch a couple of other games. I also wanted to dabble just a little bit into college basketball last night. So I really didn't have the opportunity to fully digest the Serena-Osaka match. Saw it again, but like I said, didn't really have time to do a lot of uh, second thoughts and my thoughts and feelings about it. So that will be saved for my upcoming podcast, which is going to be put out before February 21st or on February 21st. So my main thing in taking away from that performance by Osaka, her performance against Serena was there's a new sheriff in town and... I know 23 is in 24 in terms of Grand Slam wins that Serena wants. But, um, you know, watching that match, I saw a lot of Roger Federer versus Rafa Nadal near the end. Or Roger Federer versus Novak Djokovic in terms of those guys are just better. Federer is great. Federer's my guy. Federer's my favorite athlete of my generation, of, of his generation. But the last couple of years, Novak and Rafa have been de- better better tennis players. And whether it was Roger trying to go for a championship on Wimbledon and he kept getting turned away by Djokovic or he was trying to get one on the Australian Open and he just got uh, turned away and he was getting turned away by Djokovic, it became clear that even if Federer plays his A game and, for instance, Nadal or Djokovic play their B or B-plus game, chances are that still Djokovic is going to win playing on the hard courts. And it doesn't matter on the slow courts and clay that uh, Nadal, the greatest clay court specialist of all time in tennis, is going to win. It's the same thing now, I think, with the women's game concerning Osaka and Serena. I don't think Serena... Even if Serena plays her A, A-plus game, unless Osaka Naomi goes to like a B-minus, C-plus, I don't think Serena beats her. And I think the, I think it's only going to get worse. I predicted that um, Osaka will win in straight sets because you saw the domination, you saw the distraction of the 2018 U.S. Open Finals and still, the way that Naomi still came out of that and beat Serena, from what she is now, from where she was back then, she is so much more confident. She's so much more self-assured. She's so much more mature. 
she's so much more educated about herself that even though, you know, Serena's her idol and all these type of things, I mean, she would have beaten Serena even when she was, I don't want to use the word intimidated, but even when she was a little bit awestruck that she was playing her idol, her role model in tennis, Serena Williams, even when she had those thoughts and her feelings, even when she wasn't confident in herself, even when she was still having doubts about herself and if she wanted to be the face of tennis, if she wanted to be on that plateau, if she wanted to have those responsibilities, even with all of that swirling around, she was still beating Serena who was desperately trying to get to her 24th Grand Slam. So now I think the fact that Naomi is now grown into what she is, which is a superstar in the game of tennis, the face of women's tennis, the next generation in terms of greatness in women's tennis, now that she's fully embraced that, now she's comfortable in her own skin. And while she still has reverence and while she still has uh, great respect for Serena, now the fact that, hey, you know what? I'm just going to whoop your ass. <laughs> you know, I, before it was like, I'm going to beat you and I feel a little bit sorry for it. But now now Naomi's like, no, nah, sorry. I'm going to whoop your ass. I'm going to whoop your ass, Serena, as badly as I can. And I'm not going to shed one single tear. I think her relationship that, that she has, I think she's in a relationship with some hip-hop artist, has done wonders for her. It seems like, she, again, she's more confident. She's more comfortable in who she is. And with that, Serena's 39 years old. I, I, don't, I don't see where Serena goes. I don't see how Serena does this. I mean, hopefully, praying, possibly, that Naomi might get upset by somebody else. But if it comes down to Naomi versus Serena, Naomi's going to win, and it's only going to get worse, and it's only going to get more consistent in terms of the beatdowns that's going to be happening. And when you saw Serena at the uh, press conference, and she broke down, and she couldn't take any more questions, tears in her eyes, and she got up and she walked away, I think that's the realization, finally, that this great champion, this all-time great, one of the greatest athletes, goddamn, I don't give a fuck if it's male or female, one of the greatest athletes in the history of Athletics has finally found that, you know what, <laughs> I've, I've met my match. It was going to happen sooner or later. Serena couldn't be Serena forever. But now she's met somebody where the torch has been passed. This is someone who's better than me. And from, from this moment going forward, she's always going to be better than me. And it's only going to get worse as she gets older and stronger, Naomi. And as Serena gets older and more frail because of uh, father time or mother time. So it's just interesting. And she was asked, you know, whether she wants to uh, continue after the um, Australian Open and she's going to be back. I mean, she's 39 years old. What Serena is doing at her age, and especially after giving birth to a child and the complications that came from her childbirth, and which, which it almost killed her, the fact that she's still performing at this high level is unreal. The fact that she's made semifinals and finals of uh, majors is unreal. It speaks of how strong she is, not of the weakness of the women's uh, tournament or anything like that, of the WTA. No, no, no. It, it just shows you how absolutely awesome and great and incredible and strong-willed and uh, everything that Serena Williams is. But in Naomi, she's met her, um, <laughs> she's met her match, and it's not going to get any better. And like I mentioned before, I mean, the fact that, the fact that my guy Roger Federer is going to be stuck at 20 Grand Slam wins and it looks like Novak is going for number 21 as far as Grand Slam victories in his career. And once Rafa gets to the uh, French in the clay, he's going to win number 21. There could still be a debate. I still say that Federer is the best of all time, but 
you know, reaching 20, being the first one to break Pete Sampras's uh, record for most Grand Slam titles in his career. Roger was the first one to do it, but Rafa and Novak caught up to him and finally has surpassed him. And now Federer at 40. We don't know if we've seen the last of Federer. He's in, you know, I don't know what he's doing right now, taking care of his four kids and hanging out with his wife and enjoying the good life. But the Roger Federer that we knew and loved, who was dominant and this, that, and the other, those days are gone, buddy. Roger Federer winning tournaments, winning majors, those days are gone, buddy. And I hate to tell you this, buddy, but uh, Serena stuck at 23. And I shouldn't say stuck, that's a bad thing to say, but hey, you know what? She's still the greatest of all time. She's still awesome. She's still a pioneer. But uh, the torch has definitely been passed. And I think now in that press conference, Again, which is one of the reasons why she broke down and just couldn't say it and just couldn't continue. Serena knows it. Serena's a champion. It's kind of tough when you're the champion and for years and years and almost decades, you've been that person. You've been the gal. You've been the queen at the top of the mountain. You've been the uh, standard bearer and all those type of things. And all of a sudden, you ain't anymore. Now, all of a sudden, for the first time in what, maybe 25 years Serena is not the greatest or Serena is just an also ran or Serena is not that person who's going to be winning titles anymore. When after I'm 23, tough, it's tough. Now a little drama queen there. I mean, you know, Serena, let's keep things in perspective. We have people in Houston right now. We have people in the state of Texas who don't have any food or water or uh, heat during a blizzard. So I think those people might be in a lot worse straits than you are. But again, it's, it's tough. It's tough for uh, Serena for that realization. But the thing is, she's rich. She's got a beautiful child, great family. Everything is going great. She's healthy from everything that we know from the outside looking in. So, you know, hey, you take the bitter with the sweet. Or you take the sweet with the bitter in this case. Wendell's World in Sports. Bonjour, Monsieur Wendell Wallace. What's happening? K Pasa, Wendell's World of Sports, so glad that you could be with us. Okay, so got the Serena Naomi thing out of the way. I don't even know then. Should I even do it on the next podcast? I might just, I don't know. I'll think. I'll think about that. I heard thinking every once in a while throughout the day is good it's good for your brain. Wendell's World of Sports, so glad that you could be with us. Okay, let's go ahead and talk about this NFL. Latest on the disgruntled NFL QBs looking for love in all the different places. Carson Wentz. No longer, shall we say, Philadelphia Eagles, Carson Wentz. No, he has been traded. News alert, the Philadelphia Eagles have agreed to trade quarterback Carson Wentz to the, wait for it, you betcha, you guessed it, the Indianapolis Colts, the front runners, the favorites to begin with. They traded, uh, Philadelphia traded him, Wentz, for a 2021 third-round draft pick and a conditional 2022 second-round pick that could Turn into a first-round pick. The Eagles will receive the 85th pick overall in this year's draft and a conditional second-rounder. Now, according to sources, that pick that I just mentioned could become a first-round a first round pick based on Wentz's playing time. This is according to sources. Wentz also needs to play at least 75% of the Colts' offensive weapons for the 2022 season for the conditional pick to be turned into a first rounder and also the pick could be a first rounder if Wentz plays at least 70% of the snaps and the Colts reach the playoffs. He's going to be also reunited with Zach Ertz who was traded by the Eagles to the Colts also. So there we go. The Eagles are going to take 
a $33.8 million dead cap hit. Ouch. The largest dead cap hit that any uh, team has ever taken for a player. And the Colts will assume the balance of Wentz's $128 million extension, including the $10 million guaranteed bonus that's uh, due by March 19th. So you take a look at this. What do you think? Win-win for both? I'm saying both. I'm saying it's a win for both. The Eagles saved about $47 million for the next couple of years. Gained some extra draft picks. No longer have to deal with Wentz on the team in the locker room. And the Colts replaced Phillip Rivers with a quarterback who's one year from removed from having a very good year as a quarterback. Everybody likes to concentrate on this season. And hey, this season he was terrible. This season he was off he was awful. And he really didn't take the he really didn't take the benching very well also. Didn't work very well with his teammates. Didn't jive very well with his teammates. But let's also remember that this is really the first year that Carson Wentz has been downright terrible. Now, are we talking about a trend happening here? Are we talking about all he needs is a change of scenery, a new a new lease on life in terms of his football career is concerned? This is the best opportunity for him. The two teams that have been mentioned to have shown interest, the most interest in Wentz were Indianapolis and Chicago. Chris Ballard, of the, uh, the GM of the uh, Colts, was like, nah, man, we ain't giving up Matthew Stafford-type deal. We ain't going to be giving up multiple firsts. We're not going to be mortgaging our future for the Philadelphia Eagles. The Eagles came into this bargaining session, or Eagles came into this trade market with Carson Wentz thinking that, yeah, we're going to be able to get a couple of firsts and this and that and the other because you take a look at Jared Goff, you take a look at Matthew Stafford, we can get the same thing. No, we can't. Okay. Oh, shit. Oh, damn. Oh, darn. Let's go ahead and try to do something else. The Bears and the Colts were the only two that were really interested. And Chicago got the feeling very early in these negotiations that Wentz really wasn't really wasn't too uh, gung-ho to be going to the Bears. So among the Chicago Bears, I'm like, man, who, do you, who the hell do you think you are? Deshaun Watson, Aaron Rodgers, Dak Prescott? <laughs> Shit. Did you see how you reacted? Did you see how you played in 2020? And you're going to be telling me, now? Nah, I don't think so. When we have a defense that we have, if we can get Allen, Allen Robinson back as the wide receiver, we got some weapons on offense that might be able to uh, be nice for you. And you're going to be treating us like that. And you're going to be giving us that uh, type of attitude. Screw you, Carson. So with Chicago kind of becoming lukewarm on the idea of Wentz going to the going to the Chicago Bears it was like the Indianapolis Colts and with the leverage of knowing that and the realization by the Eagles that you know I guess we're not going to be getting multiple firsts and future firsts and all those type of things they made the best deal possible so this is the best opportunity not only for Wentz but this is also an opportunity for the Indianapolis Colts to get back into the running as being an elite franchise. No, I shouldn't say elite, but getting back in the running as a team that is a real viable prospect of reaching the Super Bowl, reaching the AFC Championship, winning their division. And this is the best opportunity for Wentz to show that he's a franchise quarterback. He's reunited with Colts head coach Frank Wright, who has been in Indianapolis, been the head coach there for a a few years, thought originally they were going with Josh McDaniel. They hired Josh McDaniel. Belichick, Kraft, and those guys swept in and said, no, please come with us. Please come back to us. McDaniel went back to them in a frenzy. The Colts then said, let's go find somebody. Frank Wright was their guy. 
And they found gold, they found gold, they found a better option, yet they found gold in Frank Wright. So he's been there for three years, and the fact that now, with the reuniting of him and Carson Wentz, because I guess in those guys' eyes, it feels so good, the Philadelphia offensive coordinator for Wentz, Frank Wright, when he was uh, there for uh, Carson's first two seasons in 2016 and 2017, did well, man. Did really well, 13 games that uh, Frank was the offensive coordinator for Wentz the last season that he was in Philadelphia. Carson threw for 3,300 uh, 3, yards, 33 TDs, only seven interceptions, 60% completion percentage. Again, that was uh, that was Carson Wentz. This past season, this was also Carson Wentz. Came off his worst statistical season of his NFL career. He was benched late in the season for Jalen Hurts who was the Philadelphia Eagles second round pick in 2020. So there was some there was some idea that maybe Carson isn't all that what he's cut out to be. So let's go ahead and draft Jalen Hurts, not in the fourth, not in the fifth, not in the sixth, but in the second round. And Carson completed 57% of his passes for only 2,600 yards, 16 touchdowns, 15 interceptions. Again, he was benched. He was terrible through 12 starts of last season. Didn't like it. The relationship between him and Doug Peterson soured, and he was like, I want out of here. Get me out of here. Everybody talks about 2017, though, with Carson Wentz. We got to bring back 2017. We got to bring back 2017. You realize that in 2019, he was good. In 2019, he was damn good. In 2019, he was good enough. We're not talking about 2016, 2017. We're not talking about what he did in North Dakota State. We're not talking about what he did in high school. We're talking about 2019, less than 24 months ago. He was still a guy recognized as a solid, strong, top 10 quarterback in this league. In that season, with only Zach Ertz to pass to, who made the Pro Bowl, no running game to speak of. No wide receivers really to speak of. In 2019, Carson threw for over 4,000 yards, 27 touchdowns, 7 interceptions. Yet the Eagles were in the NFC East. Yet the Eagles finished 9-7. But guess what? They made the playoffs. And they made the playoffs with a banged-up offensive line, no running game, no Pro Bowl receiver. So if the Indianapolis Colts can get that Carson Wentz back, shoot, if... If the if the new if the um both if Baltimore Colts if the Indianapolis Colts can get eighty five percent of that Carson Wentz, you mix in Carson with that running game, you mix it with that offensive line, you mix it with the play action passes now because Jonathan Allen is a threat at the running back position. You've got T. Y. Hilton to throw to, and you have a strong defense in Indianapolis. This is it, Carson. This is it. Either you're going to fulfill your expectations and your potentials, which you showed in 2017, 2019, or else really you are a bum in terms of being a franchise quarterback, in terms of having that moniker. It would be a moniker that you wouldn't be uh, having because this is the best opportunity you have. Unless the entire offensive line, running back, and wide receiver group get injured, then there's no more excuses. There's no more yeah buts. This is it for you. So when you're in a winnable position also in this in the uh, NFC, uh, AFC North. No, a, what is it? The AFC South. Jacksonville's rebuilding. Houston's a train wreck. So it's only between you and Tennessee. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? 
this is your chance. This is Indianapolis' chance. You got the coach, the system, the line, the talent, everything around you, the defense, everything that's around you. I don't want to hear about he's in the malaise. I don't want to hear about he needs to rebuild his confidence starting from right now. The moment that you were notified that you have been traded to the Indianapolis Colts should have been a 180 in terms of what your confidence level is if your confidence was damaged, if your confidence was broken, if your confidence needed to be repaired. Screw that nonsense. When is he going to start getting in touch with T.Y.? When is he going to start getting in touch with uh, J.A.? When is he going to start getting in touch with the offensive coordinator? When is he going to get start getting in touch with Frank Wright? When is he going to be able to get that playbook? When is he going to be able to start organizing passing sessions? I don't know where Carson Wentz lives in the offseason, but what is he going to do to traditional go get the uh, skill uh, players on his team, on his offense, and go ahead and whether he wants to work out with them in Cancun, whether he wants to work out with them in some other uh, exotic location, even if he wants to go ahead, as I mentioned before, go to uh, his crib and work and get to know each other and get a little bit of chemistry down. That's what Tom Brady did when he was traded to uh, Tampa Bay right in the middle of a pandemic. They found a high school in Tampa for him to uh, get Mike Evans and Chris Godwin and Rob Gronkowski and those guys to come on out, Cameron Bait to come on out and throw passes with to get a little hello, how you doing? What is, what is Carson Wentz going to do that? The stigma or the reputation for Carson Wentz is going to travel until he does something about it. A guy who wasn't, I, I guess the word, I guess the, the I get the phrase wasn't liked. That might be too strong in terms of nobody in the locker room didn't like Carson Wentz. I just don't think they gelled with him. I just don't think they were they were feeling him. I don't think there was this downright hatred of Carson Wentz. It was just a situation was just it just didn't fit. It just didn't match. And maybe that could be overlooked when Carson Wentz was playing like he did in 2019 and 2017. But a little show of discontent, a little bit of show of uh, hard times are coming. And I don't think Carson once dealt with it well. And again, when he was benched, don't think he dealt with it well. And his teammates uh, kind of saw that. And you saw the enthusiasm. And you saw the passion. And just to be honest with you, you saw the fact that the teammates played harder, tried harder, cared more when Jalen Hurts came into the lineup at the quarterback instead of Carson Wentz. And if you take a look at the resumes and you take a look at the, the abilities, you would be a fool to say that Carson Wentz is not a better quarterback physically than everything in terms of what a quarterback should look like, making the throws, the physical attributes. You'd be a fool to say that Jalen Hurts in that regard is a better quarterback than Carson Wentz. But that's only part of the responsibilities of playing quarterback. As far as a leader, as far as those who inspired, it was clearly Jalen Hurts and not Carson Wentz. And this wasn't something that was decided or this wasn't something that was found out or this wasn't something that was um, that was that snuck up on them because they drafted a quarterback as I mentioned before in the second round. So Philadelphia is going to go their way. The Indianapolis Colts are going to go their way. If you take a look at what the Philadelphia Eagles are doing in a really bad division, they were one game away from winning that division. In the NFC East, NFC least, whatever you want to call them, what are the Cowboys going to be doing? 
What are the uh, Snyder skins, the Washington Rivera skins? What are they going to be doing? The Chase Young skins, my Washington football team, what are they going to be doing? What are they going to be doing about a quarterback? The Dallas Cowboys, what's their situation with Dak Prescott? So there's a, lot, there's a lot of things going on. The New York Giants are still a team that has a good defense, played well throughout a portion of last season, strong defense, but yet still we, we don't know how Daniel Jones is going to be in terms of what type of quarterback are we getting. What's Saquon Barkley going to do when he gets back? How is he going to look when he gets back? Exactly when is he going to get back? They need some um, receivers. They need some tight ends to help Daniel Jones. Defense can't win every game 6-3 or 13-10. to 10. So in a muddled NFC least, I mean, you can make a strong argument that the Eagles have the best quarterback there. If you take a look at Wentz, Taylor, Taylor Heineke, not Wentz, Wentz is no longer on the team. If you take a look at uh, Hertz, Taylor Heineke, Daniel Jones, and TBD for the Cowboys, what are we going to do if we're the Eagles? I don't know. I don't know. Like I mentioned before, though, they got a lot of draft picks to uh, move forward. So tanking, NFL teams don't tank. There's really not a player so far that we've uh, identified, that the scouts or someone else has identified to be like, ooh, that's a can't-miss prospect at any position on the field. Still too early. The, <laughs> the season just ended a couple of weeks ago, so we don't even know what's going to be happening in terms of who's going to be doing what, who's going to be healthy, who's going to gel, who's not going to gel, college, brother, COVID. We, we don't even know what's going to be happening with this, but the initial thoughts of this deal Hey, man, if you take a look again from the Philadelphia Eagles side, extra draft pick, saved some money, cleared up the situation in terms of quarterback is concerned unless they use the number six pick to possibly draft a uh, Justin Fields. And then that's a whole new deal that we have to deal with. But the fact that no one said that Jalen Hurts was the guy, there shouldn't be too much uh, consternation or controversy concerning that if the Eagles go ahead and draft themselves a quarterback in the first round but again the whole deal to get Carson Wentz out of that locker room you save some money that contract extension is now Indianapolis's problem and from the Colts perspective if you being a Colt fan you have to look at the glass half empty or excuse me half full in terms of hey Wentz is a guy in the system with the coach with the players around him that could revitalize his career again you don't have to have Carson Wentz be at a Mahomes level, at a Deshaun Watson level, at an Aaron Rodgers level, at a Josh Allen's level. You don't need that. He can easily be a guy who's going to fall somewhere between some weeks he's going to be a top nine, and other weeks he's going to be a top 14. Either or, with that situation, the structure that the Indianapolis Colts has put down should be a sign of success for Carson Wentz and the Indianapolis Colts. Wendell's World in Sports, the podcast. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Hey, the Pittsburgh Steelers, did you hear Kevin Colbert's uh, press conference on Wednesday? You didn't? What? Why? Because you had to work? Because you had kids? Because you have other responsibilities? Because you don't care? Because you're not a Pittsburgh Steelers fan? Because you don't live in the East Coast? Because you don't follow sports? Well, then why the hell are you listening to my podcast? I digress. The Steelers, are they stuck with Roethlisberger? <laughs> the GM Kevin Colbert, you know, he gave this lukewarm assessment on Ben Roethlisberger's future with the Pittsburgh Steelers. Like, eh, you know, eh. it's like, what are we going to do, right? 
Do we have the balls to uh, cut, trade, force Roethlisberger to retire? Are we going to Are we going to Brett Favre this guy? I mean, are we going to uh, Are we going to Joe Montana this guy back then in San Francisco? Unfortunately, we don't have a Steve Young waiting in the in the wings. Unfortunately, we don't have a Aaron Rodgers waiting in the wings to Brett Favre, Ben Roethlisberger. So we're sort of kind of stuck with this guy because we're not going to be pulling in Dwayne Haskins and we're not going to be pulling in Mason Rudolph and we're not going to be pulling in Joshua Dobbs. So, uh, and when the Pittsburgh Steelers, we don't take. We're the Pittsburgh Steelers. We don't rebuild. So what are we going to do here? Kevin Colbert was like, I don't know what the hell we're going to do. But this is what he said in a news conference Wednesday about Roethlisberger and his future on the team. He said, quote, well, as we sit here today, Ben's a member of the Pittsburgh Steelers. He reiterated that to us, that he wants to continue to play. And we told him, quite frankly, we have to look at this current situation with Ben's current cap number. Some adjustments will have to be made. It reminds me of the, as we sit here today, Ben is a member of the Pittsburgh Steelers. It reminded me, that quote reminded me of a story about the late, great John Cheney, coach for Temple, um... Hall of Famer, just passed away recently. I don't know, one of his players had gone off in terms of left the campus. He was, I think he was a New York kid or something like that. So, you know, he he bristled under the under the uh, program. He bristled under the uh, discipline and everything that Cheney was putting down, how he ran the program. So um, he left. He just left campus and went back home I don't know what he was doing down there in New York, but, you know, I guess he was having fun, a release, this, that, and the other. I'm away from this guy. Thank goodness, this, that, and the other. So he was gone for a couple of days, and I think for the first 24 hours or something like that, no one knew where he was. They had an idea, but he hadn't called. He hadn't checked in. No note, no letter, no nothing. So they finally, he finally called. He's like, yeah, you know, I'm fine. I'll be back in a couple of days, this, that, and the other. So they interviewed Cheney, and they were like, well, what are you going to do with this guy? Well, you know, what's happening with this guy? And John Cheney was like, well, as of right now, this kid is still in school, he's still on the basketball team, and he's still a scholarship player. The second he steps back into Philadelphia and steps back on campus, he's no longer on the team, he's no longer on scholarship, and he's no longer going to be attending Temple University. Bingo! <laughs> That's what kind of is like for Ben Roethlisberger. I mean, as of right now, as of this moment, Ben Roethlisberger is a member of the Pittsburgh Steelers. 72 hours from now, 144 hours from now, who knows? But as of right now, while there's no games, no training camps, no nothing, he's still a member of the Pittsburgh Steelers. Talk to me in a couple of days, weeks, hours, minutes, seconds, I don't know. But as of right now, he's still with the uh, football team. But believe you me, even though he wants to come back and play, he ain't going to be coming back and playing with the salary that he's going to be supposed to be making. Not with a 40-something million dollar cap hit. Hell no. So what Colbert also said, he said Ben Roethlisberger is on the team. Ben Roethlisberger did a lot of really good things last year. We anticipate that he can still do some good things going forward. Hopefully there's a way that we can try to figure out and do what's best for the organization and what's best for Ben. Hopefully he'll be able to see that and feel the same way as we do. There's a lot of work that needs to be done, not only with Ben, with the whole unrestricted free agent class and our whole cap situation as well. 
So team owner and CEO Art Rooney II Jr. told reporters last month that Roethlisberger's $41.2 million cap hit for the 2021 season was, quote, untenable. Yeah, no shit. <laughs> and then later that day, Roethlisberger told the Athletic that he was willing to work with the team and said he didn't care about my pay at all this year. Okay, understood. Understood. You know, look, there's different situations here that Pittsburgh can handle this. And Roethlisberger. If he retires, it would still count $22.25 million against the cap for Pittsburgh. So if he, if the team opts to give him an extension and then convert his base salary and roster bonus into a signing bonus spread out over multiple years, the most the team can reduce his cap hit to is somewhere around $27 million. And Roethlisberger can also opt out and play for another team for the minimum and take a pay cut of $17.925 million, but his cap hit would still be around $23 million for the Pittsburgh Steelers, which is something Ben Roethlisberger is going to do, would not do. And I can't even imagine another team talking about, yeah, Ben, come to our team. You can win a Super Bowl with us. I don't think there's any other team that would even accept Roethlisberger right now, for the most part, a team that's looking to win a championship that Ben would really want to go to after spending so many years with a Steeler organization that's always looking to win as much as possible to maybe go to a team that's just going to uh, appease him for his salary demands. Don't think that's going to happen. So (sighs) Pittsburgh is in one of the worst situations in sports. Some of it's their fault. A lot of it is their fault. They're not bad enough to tear everything down and start a rebuild, but they're not good enough to compete for championship. Pittsburgh right now is not good enough if you go into the 2021 season as of today, as of this recording, February 18th, 2021. You think they're better than Cleveland? I don't. You think they're better than Baltimore? I don't. Bigger picture. You think that they're better than the Kansas City No More Champions? I don't. You think they're better than the Buffalo Bills? I don't. So where are we going to go from here? They started the season 11-0, and finished on a whipper, losing five of their last six. We saw the abomination at home in the playoffs against Cleveland, which, oh, by the way, didn't have their head coach. So where are we going? Come on, man, you're a Steeler fan. Where are we going with this? What do you want to see here? Because I know you being a Pittsburgh Steeler fans, you don't want to hear the word rebuild. I mean, Lord have stakes alive. I don't know how much more Mike Tomlin as a football coach can be as successful. And you still hear Steeler Nation every time they have a bad series talk about Tomlin can't do this, Tomlin can't do that. He won a Super Bowl with um, he won a Super Bowl with uh, Bill Coward's players and blah 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 blah. blah. When's the last time he won a Super Bowl? This, that, and the other. He ain't going nowhere. I hate to tell you this. He ain't going nowhere because he's a damn good coach. But still. We know how you fans react. We know how Pittsburgh Nation, Steeler Nation reacts to Pittsburgh losing. So you guys aren't about to be embracing the, oh yeah, let's tear it all down and build it and build it back up again. When was the last time that's happened? Not in your lifetime, not in my lifetime, not in your parents' lifetime, nobody's lifetime. So where are we going to go with this, huh? Come on, man, you're a Steeler fan. Let me know. Where are we going to go with this? They're all all season needs. They need to rebuild the offensive line, especially at center. Marquise Pouncey is retired, right? So we need to take care of that. But Pouncey played, what, nine years, ten years, something like that? Stalwart, one of the best centers in the game. So calling the line, checking for the blitzes, protecting Roethlisberger, who is not the most mobile. He's making Drew Brees. He's making uh, Drew Brees and Drew Bledsoe look like 
Michael Vick and Lamar Jackson. So you're going to need a center if you're going to draft one. Is he going to be able to handle that responsibility? You know you need a running back. You know you boys need a running back. A viable running back. James Conner, yeah. Yeah, Snell, even worse. And James Conner's not coming back. And that's, you know, and the most impactful running backs, the draft, Najee Harris and those guys, they ain't going to be available at 24. And even if they were available late in the first round, why would you draft them anyway and put them behind a poorest offensive line? Your left tackle isn't coming back. Your uh, line is your offensive line is in shambles. The team only averaged three point six yards per run, which was last in the NFL last season. I know you know this, so what are we gonna do here? You guys need a quarterback. You guys need a running back. You guys need an offensive line. You guys need another pass rusher, especially if Bud Dupree, who's coming off an Achilles tear, decides to take his services somewhere else. And even if he doesn't take his services somewhere else even though that would be a shock because I don't think Pittsburgh can re-sign him at the price he's going to demand, is he going to be ready to come back for the season, for the beginning of the season? So where are we going here? For the draft, you're going to need offensive linemen. You're going to need a center. You're going to need a backup quarterback, or you need a quarterback for the future, unless you think Dwayne Haskins is the answer to your problems in that regard. And I'm here to tell you, as a Washington Haskins fan, no, it ain't. So you need a quarterback, you need a quarterback for the near future, like 2022, you need a running back, you need an offensive line, and you need a pass rusher, and you might need to upgrade your linebacker position. So what are you going to do? What are you going? Where are you going with this? Where do you want to see the team go with this? Running backs? Okay, Javante Williams, Jamal Williams, no relation, Memphis, North Carolina, They're projected to go somewhere in the late rounds. You guys have most of your uh, draft picks, so you can go ahead and maybe spend a fourth or fifth round pick on that one. And we've seen examples, just like every other position in football, that there's steals. There's folks who have done quite well, guys who have made Hall of Fames and Pro Bowls and all this good stuff, being late round draft picks, sure. And when you're taking a look at Kevin Colbert and the Steeler organizations, especially the wide receiver position, they always seem to find gems outside of the first and second round, but possibly, maybe. They're currently projected to be $31 million over the cap, so free agency, making a splash of free agency, getting a running back of free agency. Well, that easy, you would re-sign James Conner, who, by the way, as I mentioned before, hardly did anything from the ground game to contribute to Pittsburgh. So what are we doing here? Bud Dupree's a free agent. Cornerback Mike Hilton's a free agent. Wide receiver Juju Smith-Schuster is a jet. <clears throat> I mean, free agent. Offensive tackle Alejandro Villanueva, the former, the former Marine Coast Guard. What was the uh, Armed Forces guy? He's a free agent. Running back James Conner is a free agent. And as I mentioned before, thirty-one million dollars over the cap. You know, you guys aren't going to be signing Smith-Schuster, Villanueva. Dupree, Connor, those guys aren't going to be coming back next season. And even if one of those, if you had to choose one of those, who would you choose? You wouldn't choose Connor, right? You wouldn't choose Dupree, right? Are you going to pay for Villanueva? Are you going to overpay for Smith Schuster? Again, those guys are going to be priced out of your, of your market. Where are we going if we're the Pittsburgh Steelers here? Now, they've got Chase Claypool. They've got James Washington from or from um, Oklahoma State. We're looking for him to take that next step, that next level up. As I mentioned before, Claypool 
is a guy, nice find from uh, Notre Dame, but the wide receiver position was your strongest position on that offense. Taking a hit a little bit with Juju Smith-Schuster if he decides to move somewhere else, which is highly anticipated. What are we going to be doing here? Oh, and I forgot to tell you, I forgot to mention, you might already know this, but let me tell you anyway, there's $32 million over the cap, right? You know they're going to need some money to re-sign T.J. Watt and Minka Fitzpatrick, right? I mean, those are two guys you cannot lose under any circumstances. So if you have to sacrifice, do whatever on the offense, whatever the other players around him, Cameron Hayward, T.J. Watt, and Minka Fitzpatrick are no-brainers in terms of these are the guys that we need on this football team. Did I mention anybody from the offensive side? No. Why? Because the strengths of the Steelers are on their defense. The first-round draft picks or the draft picks coming up, they got the 24th pick, 55th pick, 88th pick, 119th, 192, 210, 219, hush, hush, hike, Omaha. So you got that. So, again, two, four, six, seven, seven, seven picks. What are we going to do? When did they address the quarterback position of the future? I'm going to tell you when they... Uh, start addressing it. As soon as I say, this is Wendell's World in Sports, the podcast, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace, talking to Pittsburgh Steelers fans who are still yelling and screaming about Mike Tomlin can't do this and Mike Tomlin can't make adjustments and Mike Tomlin can't win Super Bowls and Mike Tomlin's been around too long. Steelers fans, come on, man. Come on! Remember when you're yelling and screaming. Remember what podcast you're listening to. Remember the host of this podcast. When you're sitting up there up there downgrading and underrating and bad-mouthing Mike Tomlin. You're speaking to a guy here whose best, whose favorite football team, NFL football team, is the Washington Snyderskins, who has been through Jim Zorn, who has been through Steve Spurrier. All right, don't talk to me about Mike Tomlin being a bad coach. You want to see some bad coaches, come on down I-95 and go to the Washington, D.C. metropolitan area and go sit back and watch some Washington football games. Or watch some highlights of some Washington football games. Man, we had to bring, bring Joe Gibbs out of the uh, mothballs in the Hall of Fame to go ahead and coach our team for a few years. And his second stint with the uh, football team was better than almost every other coach that we had in there. Including Marty Schottenheimer, God rest his soul. Including Jim Zorn. Including Steve Spurrier. Including Jay Gruden. Including Nor Turner. Don't be sitting up here bad-mouthing Mike Tomlin now. Shoot. Shoot you, shoot you. You want to trade coaches? You want Ron Rivera? We'll gladly take Mike Tomlin. Take him in a heartbeat. Thank you very much. So, getting back to what I was saying before, before I had to straighten you out on that. What do you want the Steelers to do? What do you want your team to do with the uh, quarterback? You need to start in quarterback in 22-22, right? Dwayne Haskins, Joshua Dobbs, Mason Rudolph. Those are the uh, quarterbacks on your roster. Mm-mm. <laughs> <laughs> is, is Haskins going to be their project to become the starter in 2022? Are you guys taking a flyer on that? Dwayne Haskins, the guy, if I could use a, um, oh, who that guy's name? A Fran Frischella reference. A guy who's two, year, two years away from being two years away from being a starting quarterback in this league. Is that going to be your guy? Is that going to be the heir apparent to, uh, heir apparent to, to uh, Terry, uh, to, um, uh, ben Roethlisberger, is he going to be your Mark Malone to Terry Bradshaw? 
<laughs> oh, man. Do they sign a free agent? Because, look, we've already seen what Mason Rudolph can do, right? You you know that that ain't happening. You know you guys ain't making the Super Bowl with... Okay, I just want to make sure. So, Mason Rudolph, that's not happening. Joshua Dobbs, not happening. Dwayne Haskin, wing in the prayer. Do they go ahead and sign a free agent, take a chance with someone like a... Uh, all right, man, calm down. With a Mitchell Trubisky. I said take a flyer on the guy. He's going to come cheap. He has starting experience. He was a highly regarded uh, first-round draft pick. The Bears didn't make the playoffs with him as a quarterback. Okay, the defensive might have had something to do with it. Khalil, Khalil Mack might have had a little bit more to do with it. But, hey, a quarterback for a playoff team is still a quarterback on a playoff team, right? So do you take a free agent like Trubisky? Have him sit for a year and learn under Roethlisberger before starting in 2022, something that I think the New Orleans Saints were doing this season with Jameis Winston. Do you kick the tires and see about uh, maybe call up the New York Jets and say, what's up with uh, Sam Darnold? Or do you wait for Sam Darnold to be released? Or, I mean, what do you do? You go get Josh Rosen joking. But what do you do, seriously, if you're the um, Steelers? Because you don't have to, you guys have been kicking the can down the road long enough with this. You should have drafted, you should have done what Green Bay did with Jordan Love about two or three years ago with Roethlisberger. And if Big Ben didn't like it, well, that's too fucking bad. Welcome to the NFL, which means not for long. Could have used a quarterback in waiting last season now, couldn't you? Or the season before that, when you were going with Duck Devlin and Mason Rudolph as your quarterbacks, right? Those two... Those two uh, quarterbacks cost Pittsburgh an opportunity to make the playoffs for real. They wouldn't have done anything. They wouldn't have gone anywhere. They wouldn't have beaten Kansas City. But for a city, for a franchise, for an organization, for a fan base that's all about winning, the fact that you guys had to bring out Mason Rudolph when he wasn't making racial slurs against Miles Garrett and Doug Devlin or Doug Hodges or Doug Dodgers in the 21st century, whatever that guy's name was, the fact that you had to bring him out there for multiple games kind of hurt your uh, opportunities to play. Do I make the playoffs, right? If you just would have maybe years ago got yourself a solid backup or a quarterback in waiting so you wouldn't be in this position, you could have easily after the last season with Roethlisberger been like, now nah, we're good. You know what, how... The quarterback that we drafted a couple of years before, the way that we groomed them, got him ready to play. He played well in 2020 now, or excuse me, 2019. Now we're coming back in 2020. We don't know about your elbow, this, that, and the other. We can either have a true, I don't know what we can have in terms of the quarterback position if Pittsburgh would have done their due diligence and drafted a quarterback for the future, that future being now. With Tolbert, with Colbert, Tolbert, Colbert, Snowbert would even have to make this decision if you had a quarterback that was rip-roaring, ready to go. And I'm not talking about coming in and being a top five, top ten quarterback, but being a viable starting quarterback, starting the journey that the quarterback that would have gotten plenty of time the season that Roethlisberger missed a couple of seasons ago because of the elbow surgery, 2021 season, if now you're saying this is our guy, this is a guy who right now is starting the journey somewhere between 18 and 22nd in terms of a quarterback is concerned, but the journey starts now with him to move up the 15, then 12, then 10, then 8, then we'll see what happens. You can't do that. Why? Because that quarterback's not on the team. So you're stuck with a guy 
who has a $41 million salary cap hit, who's willing to restructure, but when you're $39 million or you're $32 million over the cap, what do you do? Where do you go? What's the plan, Stan? So, the Pittsburgh Steelers, I hate to tell you this, you, you do realize that you're no longer the kings of the AFC North, right? Have you come to that realization yet? And no, it's not because of Mike Tomlin, stop. But you do realize that in terms of quarterback, running back situations in the division, you guys are at the bottom. Oh, you guys think that you're better than Baker Mayfield, Nick Chubb, and Kareem Hunt when it comes to that situation? And Cleveland having a strong offensive line? You think that you can compete with that with Ben Roethlisberger running back to be be named later in... Offensive line, we don't know what the fuck's going on with that. You really think that that can compete with Mayfield, Chubb, Hunt, and Cleveland's offensive line? You really think, seriously, that the offense for Pittsburgh, the way it stands right now, February 18th, 2021, that the quarterback, running back, offensive line combo situation is better than Baltimore's with Lamar and J.K. Dobbins and... Baltimore's offensive line? Shit, let's even go down to Cincinnati. You got Joe Burrow. You got T. Higgins as a uh, wide receiver. You got Joe Mixon as your running back. You think that's better than Pittsburgh's uh, situation right now? I do. I do. Now, overall, I think Pittsburgh's a better football team than Cincinnati, but are you going to sit there and try to tell me that Pittsburgh, as the way we stand right now, is better than Baltimore? Better than Cleveland? Come on now. Come on. Come on. Come on. Come on. Come on. Y'all know that's not right. You know that's ridiculous. As we stand right now, we don't know what's going to happen. But as we stand right now, you cannot tell me that Pittsburgh is in a good spot. And again, the Steelers are not looking to rebuild. The The easiest thing to do would be, hey, look, Ben, been nice knowing you, but Time to move forward. But then again, you don't have a quarterback on the team. But you got to, the the, the the plausible situation would be, we got to tear this down. We got to tear it down. We got to go 4-12 and 12 next year. 5-11, and 6-10, and 3-13, 4-12. That's what you should be doing. But you can't. You can't because you're Pittsburgh. You can't because you still have some studs on the defensive end. What are you going to do? You're going to get rid of TJ Watt? Shit. You're going to get rid of Mick and Fitzpatrick? <laughs> you're going to trade for Cameron Hayward? <laughs> or are you going to trade Cameron Hayward? No, 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 no. So what are you going to do? Kicking that can down the road. Kicking that can down another way. Kicking that can down for a situation to say, what are we going to do? You guys should have solved. You know this too. And again, do not put the majority or a good minority of the blame on Mike Tomlin. The Pittsburgh Steelers are in this position because they say screw reloading or screw rebuilding, we're reloading. And pretty soon that bill, that that bill that you guys are going to have to pay for Roethlisberger and Pouncey and the rest of these guys are going to come to fruition. And you guys are going to have to start from the uh, ground up. Or you guys are going to start from a position where, you know what, we might be 8-8, eight and 7-9, eight, and 6-10. And, and unfortunately, the way things are looking right now, unfortunately for Pittsburgh fans, Steeler Nation, the way that division is shaping up right now, that bill is going to be due and the price is going to be steep. 
and it's going to be ugly. What is up? What is up? What are you talking about? M.A.V. is a big deal. You know it. Don't die. Don't die. Don't die. Don't die. Let's do it. Hey. Hey. मामा बनने बोले कल्लू बन जाऊंगा तू चाहे तो तेरा पल्लू बन जाऊंगा मलयालम होगी तो मल्लू बन जाऊंगा तेलुगू रहेगी तो अल्लू बन जाऊंगा तू बनाएगी तो उल्लू बन जाऊंगा बेबी बाबा नहीं बल्लू बन जाऊंगा लड़की पताने में संजू बन जाऊंगा शादी करने बोले सल्लू बन जाऊंगा Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Getting down around town on a sex machine like James Brown. What's going on? What's happening? What is going down? My brothers and sisters out there talking about what's happening in the world of sports. You know, I'm watching TV. I always watch TV when I'm doing these podcasts. And I just, you know, just to keep me going, sometimes I have the fire stick on there and I might be watching a handball game. I might be watching an old NBA game. I might be watching an old football game. I might be watching porn. <clears throat> I mean, I might be watching uh, some other type of programming. But um, when I don't have on the fire stick, when I don't have on YouTube or something like that, and I'm watching regular TV, whether it be Chop, be Bobby Flay, Diners, drive-in and dives, ESPN, whatever, man. You know, you show these, they have these commercials, correct? So most commercials, I just can't stand. <laughs> just, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll email my uh, brother, Mikel Davis, is like, man, this, this thing sucks. I hate these people. They all should drown. I don't, you know, it just, just, just annoys me. I mean, the Chris Paul commercials, good God almighty on the Allstate Jake from Allstate, that, those commercials, what they seems like they show every 15 seconds on NBA telecast and college basketball telecast, just drives me flipping nuts. Shouldn't, immature, nonsensical, stupid, all those things you want to say about me, true. But um, one of the things I take a look at is like, have you seen these commercials for like Raid? Or I'll just watch the commercial here as I'm doing this about sensitive eyes and they have these guys, not these guys, but the animated uh, this animated uh, stuff. I guess it's supposed to be mucus or something like that. And it's like, hey, how you doing? I'm going to fuck up your eyes. And it's like they shoot them with these sprays and they kill them. They're, abs- they're, they're, they're showing murder on television. What does that mean for our children? What does that mean for your young children? These impressionable, beautiful creations from the almighty being. And you sit there and you're looking at television and you want to have a good time and you want to have some wholesome stuff and you want to have such wholesome shows as Leave it to Beaver and the Brady Bunch and what's happening in good times. And, <laughs> and you're watching these wonderful shows or you're trying to watch these wonderful shows or you're reminiscing about these Wonderful shows that you try to go ahead and see what's on television. And on these commercials, they actually are showing murder. These commercials, they are showing murder. And it's corrupting your poor children to where they'll grow up to be nothing but degenerates and drug dealers and drug users and pole dancers and street walkers and serial killers. Oh, my goodness gracious. Why? 
the influence of these commercials on television where they show these creatures, where they show God's creatures, these ants and these bugs getting murdered by sprays and pesticides. It is absolutely outrageous. You should call your congressman. You should call the person that you elected, your elected officials, and let them know. Let these people know that you will not stand for such bullshit. I'm joking. <laughs> and I, I mean, I don't know. I wonder if there's a certain portion of idiots in this country, I'm quite sure there are, who are just sitting up there going, yeah, 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 when I'm saying this type of stuff. Yeah. Yeah, I think if they're the, I think if they're that stupid, I don't think they're listening to my program. Uh, hopefully they're not. Wendell's World of Sports, but if you download, subscribe, rate, and review, give me five stars. I mean, hey, you know what? Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Okay, moving to the NBA, the defending champion, Los Angeles Lakers. They're going to be without Anthony Davis, forward All Star, top ten player, Anthony Davis, for a little bit. He suffered a strain. Calf Sunday night against uh, Denver. It's going to be reevaluated in two to three weeks. It is unlikely for him to return to the lineup prior to the NBA All Star game within the March 5th through 10th All Star break. So an MRI on Monday revealed the calf sp- uh, strain and the aggravation of the tendon, but didn't show any rupture of the right Achilles tendon. So, whoo, dodged the bullet there. So, most likely, realistically, with a little bit of caution, they're going to keep him out anywhere between four to six weeks. How concerned should the Lakers be about this injury? If I'm a Laker fan, and yes, I know you're a Laker fan too, I'm not, I wouldn't be worried. You shouldn't be worried. You're not worried, are you? You shouldn't be. First of all, it's not your Achilles that we're talking about, so why do you care? But I'm just saying, if you're a big fan of the Lakers, nah, I'm not too concerned about that. Look, currently they're 22-7. and seven. They're going to be playing... Brooklyn tonight, one of the reasons why I want to hurry up and get this done, this podcast done, is because I'm going to watch this game between the Lakers and Brooklyn. Wish it could have been KD versus LeBron, but the Lakers are playing Brooklyn. So, the 22-7, Tuesday night, beat Minnesota, going slightly above the barely carrying meeting throughout the game. You know, barely, I would say, the effort was... A little bit above average, but they're playing Minnesota, so they won 112-104. Big night for Anthony Edwards, who looks like he's finally figuring out how to play basketball, but would be nice if he could pass the ball every once in a while. But the Lakers right now, getting back to L.A., they have the second-best record in the league behind Utah by, I believe, two games. And the game ahead of the Clippers, or a game and a half, they lost to uh, Utah last night without Kawhi and Paul George. Thanks for... Thanks for uh, that little tease. But uh, so the Lakers, a couple of games behind Utah, uh, ahead of the Clippers. And then after that, you've got Portland and Phoenix. They're both 17 and 10. San Antonio is 16 and 11. Denver is 15 and 13. Bad loss against the Wizards. <laughs> Come on, Denver. Seriously, the Wizards. I mean, they lost to uh, Boston, who's struggling. Then they lose to the Wiz. Mm. And Golden State. Good comeback victory over Miami last night. They're 16 and 13. So you take a look at this. LeBron James is still the heart and soul of that team. And he's playing at an MVP level so far, averaging 25 and a half points on 48%, 49% shooting, almost 50% shooting, uh, eight rebounds per game, eight assists per game, 
playing the best defense that he's played in a while. Look, there's going to be no one player that's going to replace Davis in terms of his scoring and his rebounding. But moving up the charts or moving up to uh, take that responsibility, at least a lot of the scoring responsibility from Davis, putting points on the board is going to be Dennis Schroeder getting his points a lot differently than what AD uh, normally did as far as scoring is concerned. But look, Schroeder is averaging 14 points, does a very good job of the pick and roll, especially if you pick and roll him with Montrez Harold. So I think for the time being that Schroeder can be the second option on offense, take um, take that responsibility. And then if you're speaking about Marcus Gasol, Harold, Cal Kuzma, they're going to have a bigger role on the team with AD out. Increased minutes, more shot attempts for all those guys, especially uh, Gasol and Harold. They're going to have to definitely start taking a look more to shoot their shot. The importance on the defensive glass, the rebounding on the defensive glass, I think Harold and Gasol will do that well. Passing, again, from that high post, Gasol has already always been good. Rebounding, low post, um, Harold has been good. I think Kuzma has improved his defense throughout his uh, career. He's going to be a you know space-and-shoot guy, three-pointer, opening up the driving lanes for uh, James and Schroeder. So Kuzma being able to uh, do something a little bit different the AD was not the three-point shooter or maker that Kyle Kuzma was, even though you couldn't call Kuzma a reliable three-point shooter. But still, he's a more of a threat to shoot. You have to, you have to respect the three-point game a lot more than you had. You did Anthony Davis, which again opens up the scoring lanes for guys like LeBron and guys like Schroeder, who is a master, especially when you get on that high pick-and-switch role at the top of the key, whether you're going... Left, right, elbow, extended. Schroeder can get to the rim, taking the big off the dribble. He does that pretty well. So, hey, Kuzma shooting back to Kuzma, shooting 36% on almost five three-pointers a game. So, I think, of course, with LeBron, LeBron is motivated to win the MVP. So, that's going to keep him rocking and rolling. And the fact that I think Vogel is going to be able to uh, maintain his minutes per game somewhere around 32-33. I don't think because AD is going to be out of the lineup that all of a sudden... You're going to see LeBron minutes per game soar up to 36 or 37, 38. That's not going to be happening. So I think the Lakers can maintain water. If I mean maintain water, third, worst case scenario, I don't think Portland's going to catch them. And even if they do, doesn't really matter. I don't think Phoenix is going to catch them in terms of the standings. If they do, really doesn't matter. I don't think Golden State and San Antonio are going to catch them. Outside chance that they do really doesn't matter, especially when you're talking about the playoffs. The, the experience that LeBron has, the championship um, material, mantle that uh, LeBron holds, everything that they did last season. Don't think that the uh, Phoenix Suns, Portland Trailblazers, Golden State Warriors, any of those squads who are right now in that, you know, in that 8, 7, or 10 spot are going to be able to overcome if, and this is the key thing now, if the Lakers can get back a relatively healthy Anthony Davis by the time the playoff starts. And that's what you have to be uh, the most concerned about if you're a fan of the Lakers. And I really think in a playoff, I think the only teams, even with Anthony Davis out because of LeBron, I think the only teams that would really give uh, the Lakers a lot of trouble would be the Clippers would be the Utah Jazz. 
Mm, I don't. I want to. Oh, give me a second. No. No, they haven't proven it to me yet. I was going to say the Denver Nuggets, but I don't know, man. I don't. I don't know. There's something off with that team. There's something not right, not gelling with that team. Yeah, they had a good victory on Sunday against the Lakers at home, blew them out. But am I reading too much into losing to the Wizards? Am I reading too much into that? It's just been up and down. Jabal Murray has been up and down. Jokic, MVP candidate. But geez, man, everybody here. Not here. I'm the, only, I'm the only one here. Everybody's talking about Michael Porter Jr. Michael Porter Jr. Michael Porter Jr. Isn't Michael Porter Jr. supposed to be off limits, untouchable by the Nuggets? I don't know, man. There's something going on. I don't know. I'm not in the locker room. I'm not saying I saw this report or anything like that. There's just something off with that team. And I'm wondering how much Michael Porter Jr. is contributing to it. Now, I'm not saying that Michael Porter Jr. have the voice or the stature in that locker room that cause like major friction, that type of thing. But I'm I'm just thinking, I wonder how many players on the team really like Michael Porter Jr. You know what I'm saying? I, I'm just I'm just wondering about that because I mean we're talking about a guy where he makes Tyler Hero in terms of his confidence is concerned when he hits the basketball court, especially on the offensive end. Michael Porter Jr. makes Tyler Hero look squeamish, look shy, looks frail, docile. I mean, this guy, man, he's just putting up this. He's just putting up points. Point. I mean, this guy just putting up shots, shots, shots. And sometimes he's on, sometimes he's off. And the guy has no conscience, which is great. But, man, when you've got Jokic, when you've got you know, Jokic doesn't need a whole lot of shots. But it just seemed like. I don't know, man. Does it seem to you when you're watching Denver that when Michael Porter gets the ball, it's like all for him. Mama mentality, like led astray, that type of deal. Like I'm getting mine and screw the other guys on my team. I don't know. And there were some like hmm type of moments in the bubble last year where I think after the loss to the Clippers where they went down 3-1, to one, Michael Porter Jr., who I'm sorry, basically was a rookie, was gotten on the post, was, you know, got in the press conference was talking about we need to pass the ball more and guys are being selfish and it seems like the Nuggets are kind of talking to him about some stupid shit that he's doing on a weekly basis and he made some stupid shit comments about the COVID and wearing a mask and I don't know man that's just the stuff that's being leaked to the um, leaked to, to, to folks who can talk about it and write about it I wonder how many I wonder I just, I just don't know about that dynamic in that locker room I'm not touching Michael Porter Jr. Wouldn't touch him with, oh, Michael Porter Jr., he can lead the league in scoring and this, that, and the other. He's an uber-talented 6'10 guy who could put the ball on the floor, shoot the three, go to the basket, this, that, and the other. I don't trust Michael Michael Jordan. I don't trust Michael Porter Jr. in terms of him being a number one option on the team. I don't trust Michael Porter being that guy who's going to be your number one guy in that franchise. I just don't. There's so much more to that responsibility than just being able to put the ball in the basket. I don't think, I don't know. I'm not there. I, I don't know. He doesn't rebound enough for me. He doesn't play hard enough on defense for me. And there's just something off, man. I There's just something where I wouldn't trust him as of right now. He's still young. I think he's, what, 21, 22, 23, somewhere around there. I just wouldn't trust him in the locker room as the being the guy of having that responsibility. 
having to have the coach kind of kowtow to him on certain things. I, I, I wouldn't trust him. Wouldn't trust him at all. So for me, Denver being a threat to the Lakers, even with Anthony Davis out, I say no. I say no right now. So for the Lakers, getting back to them, the main concern is to be getting him ready, rip-roaring ready to go by the second round of the playoffs. That's, they, don't, they don't need him for the regular season. Hey, man, with the Lakers, you just get in the playoffs. And the fact that, well, you know, home court advantage. Well, who gives a damn? There's going to be no fans in the, in the uh, arena anyway. Or there's going to be so little of fans, it's not going to make a difference anyway. You're not going to have that traditional home court advantage. Now, you could be talking about the travel, and you could be talking about the routine of other teams getting the opportunity to play at home. They sleep in their own beds and they're hanging around their own wives and they're dealing with their children and all that kind of stuff. So that might be an advantage for them. But just having that quote-unquote home court advantage, especially with not too many fans in the arena to influence the refs in terms of that uh, situation, if I'm LeBron and those guys, sure, I can go ahead and win on the, uh, I can go ahead and win in um, Portland. I can go ahead and win in Phoenix. Who gives a damn if the Clippers get our get home court advantage over us? We play on the same we play on the same court. Their home court is our home court, so that's not a advantage one way or the other. So who gives a damn if we follow fall behind the Clippers? Golden State, no big deal. San Antonio, no big deal. Denver, no big deal. I mean, you have the altitude and everything, but I just mentioned before about. There might be some leaks that need to be fixed, that might be cracking, that might be uh, separating, that wouldn't scare me if I'm L.A. As I mentioned before, you just just get me back Anthony Davis as healthy as possible. If we have to, um, if we have to sacrifice the regular season to do it, that's fine. And Davis is not going to be, he's not going to be missing 30 games. He's not going to be missing 25 games, a huge chunk of games, especially as I mentioned before, with this all-star break that's coming up to where, again, they're looking, that's going to be his, um, that's going to be his, uh, his, his uh, timetable to return. So, you know, that's the only thing that could basically hurt the Lakers, I think, as far as winning the championship is concerned, is either LeBron or AD missing playoff time. Playoff time. Then you're speaking about, okay, now we've got some problems if you're going to be playing someone like a Utah. Okay, now we've got some problems if we're going to be playing with a focused and motivated playoff P, the new playoff P, Paul George and Kawhi Leonard in the Los Angeles Clippers. All right, now we've got some issues if we're going to have LeBron and AD struggling with injuries on that one. Other than that, not worried about it, not worried about it at all, especially since I don't owe the team, I'm not writing the checks, and I don't have any invested interest in it financially. But even if I did, wouldn't be concerned. Wendell's World in Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. James Harden. Hardy Har Harden put on a great performance against Phoenix Tuesday night. Did you watch that game? 128-124? Don't tell me you did. Don't tell me you did because I know when when Phoenix got up by 24, you said screw it. Especially if you lived in the East Coast. Tuesday, that game didn't end until around 1 o'clock your time. Don't tell me with you working and everything and having to do what you need to do that you didn't turn that game off by near halftime. Or early, especially no KD, no Kyrie. Don't tell me you watched that game. 
Don't tell me that folks in the West Coast understood you. No. When it got to be that big of a lead, it was good night, Irene, good night, Irene. As I mentioned before, playing without KD, Kyrie, we talked about the uh, Brooklyn Nets, right? And what's the main thing that we talk about with Brooklyn? What's the main thing that we talk about with Brooklyn? Answer the question. Exactly. We talk about those guys don't play the defense. Don't play the defense. No defense. No defense. Against a pretty good Phoenix Suns offense on the road. They held Phoenix to 49 points in the second half. They were outscored by 25. Or Phoenix was outscored by Brooklyn 25 in the second half. And 16 in the fourth quarter. The Suns didn't score. For the last 2 minutes and 48 seconds of the game. We asked for defense. We pleaded for defense. Now, because KD and Kyrie weren't playing, KD is a what net neutral defender. Kyrie, below average. So the guy that they're replacing those guys with is going to up the level of defensive ability uh, that much. Offensively, going down. Defensively, picks it back up because Kyrie is not going to be in the game garden, folks. But um, great. I mean, it was it was the best win of the season for the Brooklyn Nets. Best win of the season. Why? Once again, even though they allowed 124 points in the game, in totality, the second half. The second half, the second half, the second half. Again, no Kyrie, no KD, but yes, the Brooklyn Nets can play defense. It is there. It is in them. And maybe this gives Steve Nash the luxury that maybe sometimes early in the fourth, beginning of the fourth, late in the third, when he substitutes Kyrie, that he can put in some defenders if he needs to substitute uh, James Harden, which he needs to do because James ain't playing every day, ain't playing every game for 48 minutes. His name ain't Wilt Chamberlain. This ain't the nineteen sixty one sixty two season. But when he needs to take one of those guys out he can put in the guy who he knows is going to be able to play some defense the evidence was there the um the game against the phoenix suns so again james harden was incredible awesome 38 points 11 assists seven rebounds brooklyn's down one seven uh four games in a row they ended phoenix's three game winning streak Watching this game, and I remember who I forgot who said it. The Bro- the Brooks uh, the Brooklyn Brooks the Brooklyn Nets has been on television so many times that I forget which announcer said what. But he was making the comment that he was talking to um, one of the um, coaches who used to coach KD Russell Westbrook and James Harden when they were all in Oklahoma City, and they were making the point that you know our best playmaker on that team by far was James Harden. Now, we kind of forget that because James Harden went to Houston and, you know, put up incredible scoring numbers. And the way that he played basketball and shooting the basketball and everything really didn't lend itself to him showcasing his playmaking skills. But they were like, hey, man, when we were in Oklahoma City and we had that young squad, by far, without question, James Harden was our best playmaker. So I'm thinking to myself, I mean, we, we talk about James Harden. We talk about... 
all time, you know, all time this and all time that. We always talk about scoring because what he did in Houston, the numbers that he put up in Houston, the versatility that he had to score. He can score at the paint, he can finish, he can shoot three, step back, good free throw shooter, all of those things, right? So we're always talking about James Harden in terms of his scoring skill is concerned. Paul Pierce, I think, made the comment that James Harden, James Harden is the best scorer in NBA history because of the versatility of what he can do to put the ball in the basket. I said to myself after watching this game, and another evidence of what he can do playmaking-wise is um, what he did against the Golden State Warriors. Again, Golden State, not the greatest of defensive squads, but some of the dimes that he was uh, giving to those guys, some of the sugar that he was dishing out to those guys for easy baskets. I think with everything that's all said and done, I'm speaking about moving on to this season. Are we going to have to start expanding the talk about Harden being a scorer, an offensive guy, to maybe saying this guy might be the most versatile offensive player in NBA history? I, I hate putting in those absolutes, but when we speak about the greatest offensive players of all time, when they're in that club, when they're in the section, when they're in that sitting at that table, not only does James Harden have to be included, not only is James Harden v, VIP member of that club, he might be sitting damn near the head of the table. I, I can't think of anybody else because you can make the argument that Michael Jordan was a better scorer, but just in terms of a playmaker. Now, Michael Jordan didn't need to playmake. You're playing uh, in the uh, if you're playing in the triangle offense with Phil Jackson. Really didn't need that much of a facilitator because the offense is based upon a lot of touching of the hands, the ball touching the hands, the move, the reading, and all those type of things. So, you know, Kobe and Jordan really didn't have a chance to showcase their ability to playmake. Plus, I think for them, their definition of playmaking was give me the ball and I'm going to shoot it and score. But I'm thinking of somebody else. I mean, Russell Westbrook, no. Oscar Robertson, who averaged a triple-double, no. Jerry West, no. George Gervin, no. Dominique Wilkins, no. I'm trying to think of guys who scored a lot of points. Uh, Kyrie Irving, no. I don't know. I can't think of a lot of guys who have the offensive versatility. Nate Archibald, who led the league in scoring and assists, no. Allen Iverson, no. I'm just thinking of a guy who put up a lot of points. But... It's either you put up a lot of points, you do other things. Uh, Steph Curry, no. I think the ability, I think James Harden is one of those guys who, you know what, not only can I lead the league in points, I can also lead the league in assists. I can be that pure point guard, and I can also be that high-volume scorer shooting guard. And who else in NBA history can say that? Again, Jordan, Kobe, didn't have the... uh, didn't have the ability to do that. I don't think one of the really even cared about developing that part of their games. I don't think Jordan or Kobe could be a facilitator or be that classic point guard. It's down in their DNA. You know, they get the ball in their hands. As Jordan said during the last dance, if I'm having the ball in my hands, why do I want to give it up when I'm the most dangerous guy to put the ball in the basket? You know, why am I going to run an offense that's going to see Bill Cartwright getting a shot? Who would you rather have shooting the basketball, me or Bill Cartwright? So why are we going to be like hippie-yay, hippie-yay-yay about this triangle offense when there's going to be situations where you're going to have Bill Cartwright shooting the ball when it needs to be me? So with that mentality, and we know about Kobe's mentality, don't think that they would be equipped 
to be a guy or to be uh, players that would be looking to average 9, 10, 11 assists per game and play that Mo Cheeks, John Stockton type of uh, point guard. Wouldn't be good at it. Not in their uh, DNA. Same thing with Allen Iverson. Not in this DNA. Not like um, same thing with Trey Young. Not in this DNA. Dwayne Wade was a shooting guard. Jerry West was a shooting guard. Um, Dominique Wilkins, uh, George Gervin, shooting guard. Dominique Wilkins, small forward. I'm just trying to think of guys who had the ball in their hands, were able to put the ball on the floor, get to the hoop, shoot jumpers, do all those type of things. Small forward, shooting guard, point guard. Really can't think of it. Really can't think of one other than um, James Harden in terms who had that high level of uh, versatility to once again be that guy who can average 36 a game, also be that guy who can average 12 assists. And we're taking a look at James Harden. Let me ask you this. The Brooklyn Nets, their expectations is to win the NBA championship, right? At the very least, Make it to the Eastern Conference Finals, right? That that is that that should be for the Brooklyn Nets. That is the bare bones. That's the only thing I'll tolerate. Type of expectations, right? At the very, very, very least, you have to make it to the Eastern Conference Championships. Anything else is a complete and utter failure, right? I think James Harden, not Kyrie or KD, is going to be the key for Brooklyn to reach those expectations. I think more responsibility is going to be put on Harden with him now being the point guard. I guess Kyrie made that decision, right? But I think James Harden is going to be, he's going to be the key. As James Harden goes, so will the Brooklyn Nets, not KD and not Kyrie, especially when you're talking about who is more reliable because take a look, for instance, example of tonight's game against the Lakers. Kevin Durant is the playing. He's missing the game because of a hamstring injury, not because of rest, not because of um, load management, not because of fear of a sore Achilles or anything like that. It's a, another injury that's caused Durant to uh, miss a couple of games. The, the Nets are going to get Kyrie Irving back. He's listed as probable after missing their last game with lower back tightness. But this is a situation with Kyrie. Not only are we speaking about from the physical standpoint of you know, Kyrie has missed some games throughout his career because of um, injury, has missed large chunks of the season because of injury, having to do surgery and all that type of stuff. But mentally, who knows, man? Now, taking a look at the way Brooklyn's playing, taking a look at the way Kyrie has been interacting with his teammates on and off the court in terms of when he's not playing, sitting on the bench, when he is on the court, he seems to be into it. He seems to be really digging it. He seems to be fully invested. But that's this month. That's this game. That's this day. That's this moment in time. That's this second. History has shown we don't know what we're going to be getting from Kyrie from day to day. We don't know, especially I don't know because I'm not around the guy. But we, we, we don't know what sets him off. We don't know what gets him moody. We don't know what makes his mind wander. We don't know what makes him, you know, disengage. We don't know. It could be something that he saw on television about a situation concerning Black Lives Matter. It could be a situation where he's talking to somebody and someone says something, you know, poetic and prophetic that makes him go, ah, you know what? In the world that we live in, I don't think basketball is really that important. I mean, we don't know. 
He might hear something. He might hear a lyric in the song. We don't know. That might make him just kind of like, I don't know. I might need some time to genuflect and reflect and do all these things. I don't know. We don't know. His teammates don't know. His coaches don't know. We don't know if today Kyrie's going to be walking into the building and walking into the locker room and addressing his teammates. What's up, y'all? What's going on? This, that, the other, this, that, the other. Joking, smiling, laughing. KD, Jay, da, 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 da. Hey, coach, this, that, the other. We don't know if he's going to be doing that today or we don't know if he's going to walk into the locker room and not say any, anything to anybody. We don't know. That's been his M.O. That was his M.O. with Cleveland. That was his M.O. with uh, Boston. We don't know. We don't know. So, I think just in terms of reliability is concerned, and James can be a little, um, James can be a little, uh, the word I'm looking for here, unique in his personality, eccentric, something like that. But James Harden is going to play every game. He wants to play every game, and he doesn't mind uh, playing a lot of minutes. So in that situation, when you have the injury situation of KD and Kyrie and everything like that, I think as far as reliability is concerned and trust in that department, I think it's clearly James Harden. So Brooklyn right now, they're 18 and 12. And they're one and a half games behind Philadelphia for the best record in the Eastern Conference. Their next seven games, they got the Lakers tonight. Then they got the Clippers on Sunday. That's an ESPN game. I'm... I'm I'm, I'm, I'm hoping that both Kawhi and Paul George are available and Kevin Durant's available. That would be nice. Then they fly back to uh, Brooklyn where they got Sacramento, Orlando, Dallas. Again, Luka versus KD. That would be a nice game to watch. Then they are on the road to San Antonio and Houston. And then there's the All-Star break. So there's no reason, if you take a look at that schedule, that the Nets can't be somewhere around 23 and 15. But uh, I just like the way, I just like the direction that the Nets are going in. Now, hell, tonight they could give up 150, <laughs> they could give up 150 against the Lakers. I can give me right back to where I was before about how they're going to stop Joel Embiid in the post in the playoffs and those type of things. But as of right now, Hey man, and you're gonna. I think we're gonna have to have this discussion. I'm not gonna do it on this podcast because I gotta keep moving to college basketball. But I think on the upcoming podcast that I'm gonna have, I'm gonna throw this out to you. Hey man, can we? Can an NBA team win a basketball title like this, where they're just gonna say screw it, let's just go ahead and now score anybody, everybody? Because there's been a lot of norms in the NBA that have been broken, right? I mean, norms are made to be broken, and some of the days these norms are gonna walk all over you. You had the, you know, for the longest of time, you couldn't win an NBA championship without a big man. You take a look, Bill Russell, uh, Wilt Chamberlain won a couple. George Mikan started off by winning four or five championships. Russell, 11 and 13, and he was able to beat the Lakers dozens of times with Jerry West and Elgin Baylor. Why? Because the Lakers never had anybody that could go up against Bill Russell. Then, you know, you had the situation, Dave Cowens and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and those guys in the 70s, they won... They won championships. And then, of course, the Lakers in the 80s, having a 6'9 point guard and throwing the ball into Kareem, they won championships. Going up against Boston with Larry Bird and Robert Parrish and Kevin McHale, those two low post players, they won championships. It wasn't until Michael Jordan came around, and it really wasn't until Isaiah Thomas really broke that trend. Bill Lambeer was a jump shooting center. John Salad was more of a back-to-the-basket, uh, protect-the-basket type of, type of guy. Um... 
Dennis Rodman, his main responsibility was rebounding, but the thing, the, 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 the players that made that engine go in terms of the Pistons being successful, how about that engine go Pistons? Very nice. But the Detroit Pistons, what made that engine go, I'll say it one more time, was Isaiah Thomas, Joe Dumars, point guard, shooting guard who just happened to get some help from Bill Lambeer, 6'11", John Sally, 7 feet tall, James Buddha Edwards, 7 feet tall. But just in terms of the emphasis of where you needed to go for the team to be most successful, for the first time in NBA history, it was the Detroit Pistons, the bad boy Pistons, with Isaiah Thomas and Joe Dumars. Everything was taken up another level when you had Scottie Pippen, Michael Jordan, those two guys all of a sudden came in and the Bulls won six championships in eight years before it got back to the norm with Shaquille O'Neal being the center for the Lakers who won three in a row. And of course, Tim Duncan, the most versatile front court player in NBA history, playing the power forward and center positions. Swinging back more, swing, you know, going to the next, next phase. A jump shooting team couldn't win a championship, right? Well, Steph Curry, Clay Thompson, and those guys said, no, I don't think so. We can go ahead and win ourselves a championship. So what I'm trying to say through all this meandering is the fact that the, there's, there's, there's no one solid concrete thing in terms of what you need to do to build your team except get the best talent available and hope that it's otherworldly and hopefully that we can uh, you know uh, reach the expectations and potential of that uh, talent which will allow them to win a championship and we'll work around that talent to fill in their weaknesses but overwhelmingly riding that talent to a championship now if that comes in the in the form of a 6-1 point guard, so be it. If that comes in the form of a 7-2 center, so be it. But it's all about the talent, but yet and still, where does that talent go in terms of the position that they play that will have that team be the most successful, right? Right? Big man, point guard, shooting guard, guard combo, forward, small forward, power up, uh, shooting guard combo, center, small forward, all that type of bullshit. So now with the Brooklyn Nets, can you win a championship playing this way? Can you win a championship where you have three guys who are all about scoring? Or I shouldn't say scoring, who are basically offensive geniuses when you speak Durant, Kyrie, Harden. They're geniuses on the offensive side. That's right, geniuses. Not geniuses, but geniuses on the offensive side. Is that good enough? I mean, can you win a championship with DeAndre Jordan at your center? Can you win a championship with three guys and it's just, a you know, I mean, at least with the Miami Heat, you had LeBron, 6'8", Chris Bosh, 7 feet, Dwayne Wade, 6'4". So at least you had, even with small ball, you had Chris Bosh, the ability to play the five. Stretch five, power forward. Natural power forward that can play the center position. The Brooklyn Nets, KD, small ball four, maybe, depending upon who they're playing, depending upon how his Achilles and hamstring is. But he doesn't have the girth. He doesn't have the strength to uh, be playing the power forward position an extended amount of minutes. He's more of a uh, scoring small forward in the makeup of uh, Dominique Wilkins. You take a look at Kyrie Irving who really, if you really want to think about it, is an undersized shooting guard with point guard ability because of his incredible gifts, similar to Allen Iverson, a guy who was a undersized shooting guard, 
but had the ball in his hand all the time and could score. So that's what Kyrie Irving is. Then you have someone like James Harden, a more traditional type of point guard for his size, being 6'4", but yet still a guy who can get his own. So this combination, this trio that we have right right now that we're going to be looking at, it's going to be interesting to see, can this, because what did I say before, right? When they lost to the uh, Wizards and they gave up 140-something, 50-something, I don't know, or when they lost to another team and gave up a whole bunch of points, my deal was like, how in the fuck are they going to deal with Joel Embiid the way Joel Embiid is playing right now? How are they going to deal with that? DeAndre Jordan? Joel Embiid will eat DeAndre Jordan breakfast, lunch, and dinner and in, in between. There's no center out there that's on the market that the uh, Brooklyn Nets can come up with. They're not going to get Andre Drummond. They're, who, who else is out there? In the buyout, they're not going to get uh, LaMarcus Aldridge possibly or one of those type of guys. So who's going to be out there? That's going to help slow down the freight train, which is Joel Embiid if you're the Brooklyn Nets. But is that not going to be enough for Philadelphia because you have these guys uh, putting up so many points? And maybe in a seven-game series, game one, James Harden goes off of 45. Game two, Kevin Durant scores 38. Game three, Harden and Kyrie combined for uh, 78 points. Uh, Game four, you know what I'm saying? So it's like two, three scoring machines are better than one dominant inside force. We'll see. We'll see. We'll be interesting to watch in what has been a less than interesting NBA season. But yeah, man, the season is uh, starting to turn around for the Brooklyn Nets. The key to that turnaround continuing, not KD, not Kyrie, James Harden. Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Namaste. Konnichiwa. Shalom. Wassalamu alaikum. Bonjour. Bonsoir. Je m'appelle Wendell Wallace. What's happening? What is going on? Que pasa, mi amigos? Mi amo y Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. That's it, B-Flay. That's what I'm talking about, B-Flay. That looks good. That looks good, baby. You got this. Recording while I'm watching Beat Bobby Flay on the uh, Food Network channel, one of my favorite shows. As I mentioned before, the one of the reasons why I love 
I love it when Bobby Flay beats these people because, you know, the producers probably tell them, hey, you know, talk a little trash and, you know, this is your opportunity to be on television and camera and going against an Iron Chef. So, you know, screw it. Let's go for it. Uh, you know, some of these folks, you know, they talk a little bit too much trash to uh, B. Flay, who's always good. He's always laughing like, okay, okay, motherfucker. You, you can beat me, huh? All right. So uh, when that happens, when you got these cocky folks out here, it's like, you know, beat them. Beat them, Flay. I want Flay to win all the time. But uh, for the most part, yeah. And I was excited. Last night I was watching Chopped. Yes, yes, I was watching Chopped. And it was an old show. <clears throat> it was like in the mid-afternoon before... Osaka and Osaka and Serena and Houston and Philadelphia and the game started. Um, Denver and uh, Washington, Atlanta, Boston. Thank you very much. Free preview of the NBA uh, league pass. But I was watching Chopped, and it was like they had like two black people, uh, you know, to start the show. You know, four comes out, so it was like one, two. And then two white folks. And I was like, well, okay, at least we know who's going to be eliminated the first and second round. Only because, damn, every time I watch Chop and they have a black person on there, they're always getting eliminated first round. Not claiming racism. I'm not saying anything like that. But high percent of the, of the time is like, yeah, you've been chopped first round. Like, damn, man. It's like, can y'all get some better chefs who are black? You know, so Zakarian and uh, Owen Shelley and Marcus Samuelson and Amanda Freitag and the beautiful Monique Chaldron. Don't go ahead and chop these folks. Well, this time, they had uh, two blacks, two whites, and in the finals, it was like two black people for the dessert round. And man, it was like, I already won the championship. Doesn't matter who wins. A black person is going to win chop, and on the final uh, stage of the contest, the dessert round, they have two Negroes in there. Woo! <laughs> Yes, that's what I'm talking about. That's what I'm calling progress, baby. That's what I'm talking about. Yeah. Love it. Love it. Again, not charging. I don't think those guys, any of those guys are racist. I'm not saying that Chop is racist. I'm not saying they're biased. I'm not saying anything like that. I'm just saying that the producers need to go out and get better chefs who are black who can come on that show and start winning a little bit more. Because, man, sometimes it's like the first round, it's like, I'm rooting for you. I want to root for you, but damn, it's like the first three are, their their entrees are fantastic, and yours is just like, it's good, but it's just not good enough, and it's like, you can't, you can't move on if it ain't good enough, sorry. Man, I would love to, I wish Eddie Jackson, who sometimes on that show and judges, I wish sometimes they would play, the, you know, brother's gonna make it through to the other round, but it's like, you know, I can't, I can't uh, have you go through just because of the color of your skin, can't do that. Can't do that. Now, if it becomes tight and we have to flip a coin, you know, maybe my bias might come through that way in terms of, I mean, how many folks do we have moving to the second round? But with a dessert round, how many black folks do we have moving to that uh, part of the uh, competition? Eh. But when it's, you know, when it's pretty obvious that you ain't cutting it, it's time to get chopped. So, but yeah, but I'm watching Bobby Flay right now trying to get this done before the uh, TNT game starts between Milwaukee and Toronto and the Lakers play the Nets tonight afterwards. Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. So, college basketball. With the NBA season going strong, with the NFL season now over, and with Major League Baseball starting up pretty soon, which I don't pay too much attention to anymore, for the most part, you know, my viewer pleasure of choice and to speak on, on the podcast 
is whatever's happening in the world of sports and the world around that affects sports or whatever comes to my brainy little head of mine. But um, college basketball, I really haven't been paying too much attention to it outside of, of course, Georgetown, who play on Saturday against Seton Hall. Let's go Hoyas. But outside of Georgetown, I really haven't been paying that much attention to college basketball. Haven't been playing, paying really any attention to Texas Tech basketball. Matt McClung, who should be on Georgetown, transferred, weaseled, weaseled his way out to play on a team that's contending in Texas Tech. So I'm hoping and pleading that Texas loses. Texas Tech loses in the first round of the NCAA tournament, and then McClung can go and declare for the NBA draft again. But really haven't been paying too much attention to it. I know the Big Ten is strong. I know the Pac-12 is strong. Um, to take a look at the top teams, top-ranked teams, take a look at these teams. Gonzaga Baylor, clearly the top two teams in the country had an op- had the opportunity to watch Gonzaga play earlier in the year. They're 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 legit. Gonzaga Baylor, Michigan, Ohio State, Illinois, Houston coming in at number six. Kelvin Sampson, one of the more overrated coaches in college basketball, should have been an NBA coach, but he's doing a great job now there in Houston. At uh, Virginia, Alabama's number eight. Oklahoma, Lon Kruger, another awesome coach who tried his hand in the NBA with the Atlanta Hawks, but everywhere he goes, he wins. He's a fantastic coach, a good guy too, from what I've known. He, um, Oklahoma comes in at number nine, and Villanova, Jay Wright, uh, the legend, number 10. So take a look at those teams I just mentioned. Gonzaga, Baylor, Michigan, Ohio, okay, Michigan, Ohio State, Illinois, Houston, Alabama, no, we're talking about basketball, not football. Alabama in the top 10 in basketball. Oklahoma, again, not talking about football, talking about basketball coming in in the top 10, Villanova. Been the year of the non-traditional Blue Bloods because if you take a look at the teams like Duke, Kentucky, Michigan State, UNC, a couple of those teams ain't making the tournament unless they win their conference tournaments, namely Duke and Kentucky. Michigan State is 10-9 overall, 4-9 in conference play. Duke is 8 and 9 or 9 and 8 overall, 7 6 in conference play. Kentucky, 7 and 13 overall, 6 and 7 after a two game winning streak in conference to make it 6 and 7 in conference play. That's the lowest they've been since the 1926 27 season in terms of uh, their record as it stands right now. North Carolina, 13 and 7 overall, 7 and 5 in conference. They're. They're on the inside looking out, but they're closer to being out than they are to being a solid in. And other strong programs who have been struggling. Indiana, one of five schools that's won at least five national championships. They're in jeopardy of missing their fourth consecutive tournament, and they're 12-9 and nine overall. Big win, uh, I think it was, was it last uh, weekend against Iowa? They won at Assembly uh, Hall, but they're 12-9 and nine overall. Kansas, currently ranked 23rd. With three number one seeds in the past four tournaments, they're looking at a, somewhere around a five or six seed, which would be their lowest since 2000. Preseason rankings, take a look at the preseason rankings. Kansas was ranked number six. They're currently 23rd. Kentucky was ranked number 10 in the country coming into the season. They're not going to even make the NIT tournament. Duke was ranked in the preseason number 12. They're on the outside looking in. Michigan State on the outside looking in. They were... Uh, ranked 13th in their preseason. So this wasn't a projected down year for those teams. In fact, it was, I guess you could say in some ways it was projected that they would be 
down this season? Because normally when you speak about Duke and Kentucky and Michigan State, that those teams are normally in the top five. So for them to be outside of the top 10, I guess you consider that for those programs to be a quote-unquote down year. Well, those teams, namely Duke, Michigan State, and Kentucky in North Carolina, they're not even ranked in the top 20. So Duke, Kentucky, Kansas, North Carolina, at one time, those guys were completely out of the top 25. That hadn't happened since 1961. They've combined to win 54% of their games this season. That's the lowest collective percentage for those teams since the 1915-16 season. Do you know that North Carolina plays Duke on, on Saturday? Are you interested? Are you uh, pumped? Do you care? I mean, both teams are unranked. They're going to be playing in an empty arena. Much mentioned before, both unranked for the first time since 1960s. 1960, the February 6th matchup with the lowest TV rated in audience for this series in the last 14 years, the first time that Duke played North Carolina. That's where college basketball is right now. Oh, yeah, and their most prized freshman, Jalen Johnson, he op- he opted out. He's uh, quit the team. He's going to get ready for the NBA draft. 6'9 player, uh, potential lottery pick, but he can't shoot worth a lick. Really doesn't step up big games. So that's where Duke and Kentucky and North Carolina and all these schools are. And this is like the second year where North Carolina last season, they finished the season under 500. And that's with Cole Anthony coming in. Many people thought that he was going to be a top three, top four pick in the draft. He slid all the way down to Orlando. So I, I think what I think what the data proves and is showing Again, when you're taking a look at a schools at schools like the non-traditional powers. Now, Gonzaga has been, I guess you could say Gonzaga has been the Kentucky and Duke rolled into one in terms of the mid-majors are concerned because they're no longer considered a mid-major. I don't care what era we're talking about. Ever since uh, Mark Few took over that program from, uh, I believe, what Dan Monson, who decided that he was going to go for greener pastures and more money, put Gonzaga in the map, and then he went to a Long Beach State. But, you know, he was the one that got that ball rolling, and Mark Few was the one that took it to astronomical levels. Gonzaga is the powerhouse. Gonzaga is now with the, you know, with the recruitment and, you know, getting Jalen Shrugs, who's going to be a number one, number two, at the very worst, number three pick or number four pick in the NBA draft. They're you know, supposed to be the favorites in landing Chet Holgren, even though I pray every night to the almighty being that he go to Georgetown, who's on his short list of schools that he's considering. But the um, main school or the school that's most likely to to uh, get the number one player in high school this season, Chet Holgren, is Gonzaga. Played at the same school, played in the same school AAU team as, as Shrug. So it's kind of like he has kind of like an inside look at what that program is all about. Now, he could go to the G League, but he's making the statement that he wants to play in college for a year. But um, if he does, 
As much as I would love Bay and wouldn't mind taking a couple of years off my life existence to see him play one season for Patrick Ewing at Georgetown, all indications are that he will probably, if he go to college, go to Gonzaga. So Gonzaga now is starting to get the four and five star recruits, even though they're not at the level as far as recruiting is concerned with the Kentuckys and the Dukes and the Kansas and the North Carolinas. And Kansas is not what you would call a major player when it comes to recruiting also. I mean, you had... Penny Harloway with his historic recruit, a couple uh, recruiting class uh, last season. Of course, Calipari and Krzyzewski have been the kings in that situation. But, you know, right above that, you have Gonzaga with Mark Few. But he's built that program. He's built those uh, strong programs, championship-type teams on guys who weren't one-and-dones, guys who weren't five-star recruits, guys who weren't ESPN uh, rivals, 24-7, top 5, 10, 15-type 15, 15 uh, ranked players in the country. Same thing with Jay Wright. Jay Wright has won um, multiple championships with players who haven't been mainly five-star recruits. In fact, Jay Wright was in a position where his job was starting to get in jeopardy when years ago he went ahead and he got two undersized prospects, two three-star prospects named Chris Jenkins and uh, Jason Hart. Out of the Washington, D.C. area, Jason Hart was a guy who was really interested in going to Georgetown University, but John Thompson didn't feel the need to offer him a scholarship, even though Jason Hart was going to Sidwell Friends High School, the same high school that uh, uh, Barack Obama's kid kids went to. But Jason Hart was a guy, three-star recruit, marginal recruit, but a good recruit in the D.C. area. Instead of uh, offering him a scholarship, Jason Hart said many times that Georgetown was his dream school. He would have gotten to Georgetown in a heartbeat as long as they offered. Well, instead of offering Jason Hart, or uh, yeah, Jason Hart a scholarship, they offered Reggie Cameron out of uh, New Jersey, a six-seven shooter. Reggie Cameron never learned how to shoot, never learned how to guard anybody, never learned how to dribble, never got any more athletic, couldn't beat anybody off the dribble. Was a disappointment as a as a four star recruit from New Jersey, and Jason Hart just became Player of the Year and revitalized Jay Wright's coaching um, career and the Villanova program and signaled the end of JT three as far as the coach of Georgetown. That was the beginning of the end. As you wanted to trace back exactly when Georgetown went from being in the Final Four two thousand and seven and being one of the top schools in the eastern uh, side of the country and making the tournament and doing all those things to becoming fourteen and nineteen, no one going to their games and becoming a laughing stock and becoming irrelevant pointed to the fact that they couldn't got they could have got Jason fucking Hart, but instead gave gave a scholarship to Reggie Cameron. I digress. But the key to all that is um um Villanova and uh, Jay Wright built that program not on one-and-dones and five-star recruits. So unlike football, where you have the same group of programs winning championships, competing for championships, Alabama, Ohio State, Clemson, those type of schools, and the, and the rest really don't have a chance because those schools are gobbling up all of the four- and five-star recruits. Well, the difference is in football, the four- and five-star recruits, they normally stay three or four years to play football at the school. And you get those four- or five-star recruits for staying for three or four years, and you're backing up those four- and five-star recruits with more four- and five-star recruits. Well, then, of course, the Alabamas and the Clemsons and the Oklahomas and the Ohio States are going to continue to uh, do great things, while the other schools playing college football don't have a chance, especially if you're speaking about schools, football programs from the non-Power 5 conference. 
in basketball, it doesn't matter. If Gonzaga was a football program, Gonzaga would never happen because Gonzaga doesn't play in a conference. Gonzaga doesn't have the resources. Gonzaga doesn't have the um, facilities to compete with the blue bloods of college basketball. But because they're great in their conference and because they actually get an opportunity to play in a tournament, you can actually sell that to somebody. Instead, if you're a college football program and you're not being, and you're being recruited by, say, Iowa State or Mississippi or Oregon State or one of those schools, or Georgia Tech, if you're being recruited by one of those schools, you ain't never going to play in the college football playoffs. If you're being looked at by North Carolina State or Wake Forest to play football, you, you ain't beating Clemson. If you're being recruited by Mississippi State and Vanderbilt and Tennessee, you ain't beating Alabama. So screw it. If you can't beat them, join them. Well, when you're speaking about Gonzaga and other of these basketball programs with 68 teams and being in a tournament to compete for a championship, well, you have a much better chance. So unlike football, basketball, you can, if you're a mid-major school, grow yourself into a major player. And you see these teams like Villanova, a small uh, private Catholic school in, in the Northeast, because of their ability to attract ball players from uh, the D.C. area and the Philadelphia area in the sport that they play in, yeah, they have a chance to compete and win championships, which they've done, which made them a traditional power. Same thing with uh, Baylor. Same thing with Gonzaga. Same thing with Houston. Same thing with Oklahoma. Same thing with Alabama. Oh, Oklahoma and Alabama, the schools in the Big Ten and SEC, they don't give a shit about fucking basketball. Basketball is just a distraction to get them to uh, spring practice for football. It's just a nice little distraction for them to take their minds off of high school football recruiting for about 15 minutes. You really... You really think that if Tom Cream down there in Georgia got a squad that was ranked in the top 10, top 5, that those folks in Athens would really give a damn? And they would say, nice job, nice job. But truth serum, about 80% of those folks in Athens, what what's, uh, sport would you rather have be dominant, football or basketball? Shit, they're going to be going basketball, they're going to be going football all the damn time. It could be the final game. I mean, Auburn made the... Uh, NCAA uh, finals, Bruce Pearl at their coach. You think them folks gave a damn? If you ask them, would you rather have the Auburn football team beat Alabama or the Auburn basketball team win the national championship in basketball? You know what the answer is going to be. Shit, the Iron Bowl, that's 50 times more important than any other sport down there winning a championship in in the sport that they play. But uh, it's possible. But it's doable. So, I, again, it's it's. Uh, I think the one and done era, as far as winning is concerned, I think that's over with. Number one, with the G League coming in, you're not going to be getting. Uh, I think a lot more of the uh, players are going to be taking a look at uh, the G League. Now, it all depends if Jonathan Kaminga and Jalen Green, those guys get drafted early. If Deshaun Nix gets drafted in the first round, I think you'll start to see more top-tier players up for the G League and, not, and don't even worry about um, college basketball, especially if you're going to be getting six-figure contracts for a year, which the uh, select team in the G League 
is uh, giving those guys. I think Jalen Green got like, you know, $250,000 or some nonsense like that. Imani Bates is supposed to be the best prospect, high school prospect since LeBron James, who's right now, I think, still a junior. His He's verbal to Michigan State. If the G League, if the G League offers him five hundred, seven hundred fifty thousand, one million dollars to go to the G League, is that going to be enough for him to be like, yeah, sorry, Michigan State, love you, Tom, and you know, one shining moment is all. That's all great and everything, but a million dollars is a million dollars, one million dollars. So, I think the G League is going to have an impact in terms of players not going to college. I think once they institute the. Uh, you can go straight from high school to the NBA. That's going to hurt a lot of these programs who were feasting on the success of one-and-done lottery-type players. But, you know, it's a whole new different ball game, And it's interesting to see that a lot of these players aren't clustering to go to one school. Yeah, you still have Kentucky and you still have Duke who will bring in the four- and five-star recruits. But I think the last, like, type of, like, the like four of the top ten recruits in the country going to one school – I think when Zion, R.J. Barrett, and Kim Reddish, those three guys went to Duke, and all those guys were five-star top ten players in their in their class, and R.J. Barrett was supposed to be a number one draft pick, Zion was supposed to be a freak of nature, Kim Reddish was supposed to be a guy that was going to be a high lottery pick, and Duke was supposed to be one of the best teams that's ever played in the last 20 years and all that kind of stuff. You go back to Kentucky with Michael Kidd Gilchrist and Anthony Davis and those guys who were highly... I think that type of clustering, as far as like superstar, superstar, superstar type of a talent, I don't think they're going to be doing that anymore. Kate Cunningham, the number one player in the class by far, he went to Oklahoma State. Evan Mobley, a five-star player, he went to USC. So, yeah, Terrence Clark and a couple of these other guys, DJ BJ Boston, they went to Kentucky and such. But I think the... Players, the recruits, the five-star guys, the one-and-dones, I think they're going on to other programs. And again, you had Michigan, who's the third best team in the country. They don't have any one-and-dones. Baylor doesn't have any one-and-dones. Gonzaga, Shrugs is going to be one-and-done, which pushed them over the top, but still, they were going to be a good team whether he was uh, there or not. Um, Houston doesn't have any one-and-dones. Virginia doesn't have any one-and-dones. Oklahoma doesn't have any one-and-dones. Alabama doesn't have any one-and-dones. And the teams that do have the one-and-dones, the teams that did have the highest-rated uh, recruiting classes coming into uh, this season, the three top recruiting classes of 2020, Duke, Kentucky, North Carolina, where are they at? They had a combined nine five-star players commit to those guys and four and nine four-star recruits and what they've been doing how are they been doing and not one of those guys for the most part is projected to go in a top four top five top six in the nba draft if you take a look at the, the 2019 recruiting class when memphis brought in that historic seven player class wiseman precious achua boogie ellis who was being recruited by georgetown decommitted from duke DJ Jeffries, Lester Aquinonis, Malcolm Dandridge, Damian Ball out of Memphis, who was being recruited by Georgetown, went somewhere else. What did uh, what did those guys do? Now you can point to the fact that James Wiseman only played three games before you know the NCAA kind of shushed them away from college basketball. But a team that Penny Hardaway brought in with well, that seven-player class that was supposed to rival the Fab Five and uh, the Kentucky freshman, the Duke freshman from a couple of years ago with Zion Cam and RJ. This was supposed to top them all. 
Memphis was supposed to be a dark horse to uh, win the national championship. What did they do? They finished the season 21 and 10 in the AAC and 8 and 10, excuse me, 10 and 8 in conference play. Far from far from dominating. Wiseman, Ochua, those guys declared and went to the draft, but you know, you know, Ellis and Lester and DJ and Damian Malcolm, those guys are still playing. They're still back and playing this season for Memphis, who's good. But, you know, they're 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 just kind of treading water in terms of even this year being down with the uh, Blue Bloods. So we'll see. We'll see. It's it's just the way that uh, the uh, a season's going. So as I get more engrossed and more paying attention, paying attention more to uh, college basketball, interested to see exactly who's going to be coming to the forefront and if any of these teams that are on the bubble, like a North Carolina or a Duke or something like that, can actually make a move and get themselves in a position where they can make some noise in the NCAA tournament. If they make the NCAA tournament, I doubt it. New age in college basketball. The Blue Bloods, the one-and-done schools that found success so many times throughout the years. For right now, and I think moving on, that era is done. Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. A lot of things going down. A lot of things to talk about in the world of sports. I was speaking about college basketball. I was speaking about the mid-majors having a chance. You know, the George Masons had made the Final Fours before. The VCUs, when Shaka Smart was the coach, they made the nice little run. Uh, Loyola, Chicago, they made a run. We've, we've seen this before in terms of the major difference between college football and college basketball because of the 68-team tournament, because of just the sport in general, the differences of the sport that the mid-major and other schools can build themselves up. Gonzaga went from being a mid-major to a school that's now one of the elite, if not the elite, college basketball program in the country. You take a look at the Big East and you take a look at Dave Gavitt, the commissioner, the founder of the Big East, and you had schools like Georgetown and Villanova and Seton Hall and St. John's and uh, those schools, those small, uh, small private Catholic institutions. And now you take a look at the Big East Conference and you take a look at those schools and the fact that those guys have an opportunity 
to win championships. Villanova taking advantage and winning championships. So the size of the school really doesn't matter. The budget of the athletic department doesn't matter. It plays a role, no doubt about it, but that's not the end all the be all. Georgetown had much better success when they were when they didn't have the Thompson Center than when they had the Thompson Center. Now that is something for them to turn things around. But as I mentioned before, it's not the end all the be all like it would be for a training table and the buildings and everything for a college basketball program. You see these unbelievable uh, 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 training facilities at Oklahoma, in Alabama, in Clemson, in Ohio State and all those type of things. How's the uh, Clemson basketball program done with the amenities that's been uh, awarded to them for, by the football, by, on, on the sweat and the success of the football program still hasn't helped Clemson become a major player in college basketball. But I get, I bet you one thing, you can take the most dormant of college basketball programs and bring them in a John Calipari and they can turn them around. They can turn them around very quickly. So those are the things that I'm talking about in terms of, you know, <clears throat> college basketball moving forward. The Blue Bloods, the teams that have been used traditionally to winning championships, those times are a changing. And I was thinking about this the other day when I was taking a look at something that I read and was at first, when the news first came out, I was like, oh yeah, hooray, oh yeah, mm-hmm. And it kind of, because of COVID and just life in general, it just kind of forgotten, I've forgotten about it. And then I just kind of did an update. And when I read the story, I was like, ah, damn, 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 damn. This is the most disappointing story in college basketball this season. And the ramifications could be majorly negative for uh, the situation. Howard University announced last Tuesday that it was suspending basketball activities for the rest of the season after COVID-19 related issues. The program had been shut down since the middle of December. Howard has played just five games this season with his only win against Hampton on uh, December 18th. In fact, that's the last time the team played. And the Bisons are the only team in Division I college basketball that failed to play a conference game this season. 11 games were either postponed or canceled. That's, one of them was a highly anticipated nationally televised game against Notre Dame that was to be played on Howard's home floor. God Howard's first shutdown for COVID-19 related issues was announced by the school on January 8th, one day before a scheduled home game against Delaware State. And at the time of the announcement, the program had already been shut down for nearly a week. And I read the story in the undefeated and the source told the undefeated that the positive test was confirmed after the team returned from Christmas break. Now, why is this such a big deal? Who gives a damn about Howard University? Who gives a damn about Howard basketball? They haven't done anything. They're inconsequential. They're an HBCU school. And I'm not trying to sound racist here, but HBCU schools are completely irrelevant when it comes to uh, college basketball. They don't count. They don't exist. It's, you know, all of those things. So why is it a big deal that Howard University, Wendell, is shutting down his basketball program. Who gives a flying fuck? Well, this is the reason why. Because this might have been, this might have been the one and only chance 
for an HBCU school to ever be semi to somewhat relevant in college basketball. This was a movement that was supposed to be happening and it didn't even start and it ended before it began. McCour Maker, if you remember, was the first ESPN 100 player. He was a five-star recruit, ranked number 16 overall in the class. He was the first ESPN 100 top player to commit to a historically black college and university, or as we say, HBCU. He had offers from Kansas, Kentucky, UCLA, Auburn, all of these high major pro, uh, all high major programs, and he went to Howard. And this was supposed to be the deal. This was supposed to be the guy. This was supposed to be the Jackie Robinson. This was supposed to be the person who was going to, uh, you know, we always hear about breaking color lines, right? Breaking color lines. Who was the first black player in the SEC? Who was the black first black player to attend this historically white, white uh, institution? Who was the first black player to break into this league and break into this, that, and the other, right? McCorm Maker was going to be the guy who was the first guy to commit to a historically black college that got the ball rolling for other highly recruited black athletes to eschew the blue bloods of college basketball and instead enroll into an HBCU. He could have been that guy to say he was the first. He was the one that got everything started. Well, this season, McCorm has only played two games because of injury and canceled games. He scored only 23 points in 48 minutes over two games during his freshman season. And on January 11th, Maker announced on Instagram Live that he was positive with the COVID-19 virus. <sighs> That's it. He's done. He's done. And the news that McCord was going to Howard University, that got play on every talk show, national talk show, that got play on First Take, that got played on the Mike Greenberg show, that got played on the Shannon and Skip show, that got played on Tyranny and, uh, and Barber, that got played on the Nick Wright show, that got played on all of those deals. ESPN was talking about it, TNT was talking about it. I mean, it was news. It was news, it was news, it was news, and that was going to catapult the historically black colleges to possibly, maybe, going ahead. And this wasn't going to be a situation where all of a sudden North Carolina A&T and Prairie View and Delaware State and Coppin and Maryland Eastern Shore and Virginia State and all It wasn't all of a sudden that those schools were going to start recruiting like Kentucky and Duke. Then all of a sudden now you were going to, you were going to have recruiting classes compared to Memphis and North Carolina and Duke and Kentucky. That wasn't going to ever be the case. But damn, there was going to be the case where just like Gonzaga started, small steps, small steps. You start getting players who can play. You start getting three-star recruits and you start having success. And those three-star recruits play four years and they play five years because of the red shirt. And all of a sudden now, those three-star recruits lead their teams to the NCAA tournament and then to the round of 32 and then to the round of 16. And maybe those three-star recruits, one of those three-star recruits turned into a player that was under undervalued and overlooked, and that three-star recruit turns out to be a first-team All-American, and he's the backbone, and he's the foundation, and he puts the team on his shoulders to lead a team to the NCAA tournament, to lead a team to the Sweet 16, which gives that program more and more visibility, and you start seeing other ball players start to come in to that uh, basketball program, <clears throat> that basketball program, and the program grows, and it grows, and it grows. So maybe it becomes a Wichita State. So maybe it becomes uh, Siena. Maybe it becomes one of these mid-major schools where, yeah, on a year-to-year -year basis, 
They ain't going to be winning championships. On a year-to-year basis, they're not going to be making the Final Four. On a year-to-year basis, they're not going to be outdueling Kentucky and Duke and North Carolina for recruits. But year after year after year, they're going to be a team that's going to make the tournament. Year after year, they're going to be a team that's going to be able to win games. Year after year, they're going to be a team that might have the ability to win multiple games in the NCAA tournament. Year after year, they're going to be somewhere in the top 25, whether it be ranked number 18, ranked number 21, ranked just right outside the top 25, meaning they're going to be relevant in college basketball. That's what, hopefully, the impact of McCore Maker was going to have on Howard University, which would lead to other top-tier recruits maybe giving the HBCU schools a harder, more realistic look, more respectable look. And look, Howard University with McCoy Maker wasn't going to all of a sudden make the NCAA tournament this year. I've seen Howard University play Georgetown year after year in college basketball. That team is horrible. That team is terrible. Georgetown, who isn't any good this season, played Coppin State, beat them handily. Juan Dixon, the guard who uh, led Maryland to its only championship squ- uh, squad with Lonnie Baxter and Gary Williams with the coach, he's coaching down at Coppin State. That team was terrible. That team is horrible. Terrible. Bad coaching, bad players, bad offense, bad everything for being a, for going up against a power five school or a, a school in one of the conferences where it can produce a national champion. Terrible. Terrible. So this wasn't something where this was going to be overnight. But the hope was that McCorb was going to come in and he was going to average maybe 18 and 11, maybe 17 and 9. Howard was going to win some basketball games, maybe get close to 500, maybe get a little bit over 500, maybe go ahead and qualify for, if not the uh, NIT, maybe the CBI, maybe a tournament where once again they can get more exposure, they can get on television a little bit more. That was the hope for Howard University. And ESPN coming to the home court of Howard, televising that game, nationally ranked game, that would give Howard that shine, which in turn, which would give the whole HBCU, which would, go, which would give the whole MEAC conference that shine. McCord could have done for Howard and for the MEAC and for HBCU schools what Joe Namath did for the AFL back in the day. But there was no Super Bowl for the Howard University team to play. There was no equivalent to that. Why? Because of COVID and other things. They're done after four games, after four games, after four games. Haven't been seen, haven't been heard, haven't been thought of, haven't been cared, nothing. Even back in D.C., it was a story for maybe a half an hour and that was done. That was it. Talking about Chocolate City. And even though Chocolate City is no longer the Chocolate City that I knew of because you had a lot of folks who are vanilla moving in, which could make it maybe milk chocolate. Instead of saying Chocolate City is now Milk Chocolate City, but yet and still, Howard University, a strong, historic black university. Their basketball team goes under after the high expectation of being, of getting the opportunity to get their name and face and likeness and everything out there. Done, finished, done. Thanks for coming. (sighs) So for the 2021 season and their four games that they played, Howard lost three of their four games. 
lost their first three games in the Paradise Jam. Two of them were mid-major programs, Belmont and George Mason. The other one they lost to a Division II school, Queens College. Queens College. Howard University with McCore Maker. Five-star recruit. Losing to Queens College. Queens College. Queens College. McCore only played two games, man. Scored 11 points, grabbed eight rebounds in his college debut. <sighs> Scored 12 points and four rebounds in the loss to Queen College, Division II Queen College. <sighs> played just 19 minutes against that Division II school. And after that, it was announced that he was being shut down because of a hip injury. I mentioned before he got COVID. Goodbye. Season's over. Thanks for coming. Thanks for playing. What's he going to do now? Is he going to transfer? I'd rather him. I'd rather have him uh, just go to the NBA draft. Thonmaker is his brother. Thonmaker was a guy drafted by, I believe, the Bucks first round, who kind of went the similar route that uh, his younger brother did, or his younger brother followed in the footsteps of his older brother in terms of these were guys originally born in Africa, then they went over to Canada, and then they went to a couple of prep schools here in the states and. You know, a lot of, and, and um, I think Thon sat out a year or he got a loophole because he was 19. So because he was 19, he didn't have to, uh, he could he could be eligible for the NBA draft right out of high school. He didn't have to wait a year. Um, and McCore, his brother, was the same thing. I mean, he went to a couple of high schools, a couple of prep schools, and, you know, he went to Howard. So I don't, I don't know exactly what he's going to do. I don't know what his brother is telling him about, you know, whether he should stay at Howard, whether he should just declare for the NBA draft, whether he should just transfer. Because I think now, I'm not quite sure, I'm going to have to look it up, but I'm quite sure there's a situation where you can, uh, you know, transfer. And I think he even might be eligible because there were multiple players who missed seasons and um, because of injury and such, played a couple of games, missed the rest of the season, and then went ahead, transferred, and played the uh, played the next season. McClung was one of them. And so, I mean, it could be a situation where McCord could just be like, you know what, I'm just going to go ahead and transfer to uh, Kansas or Auburn or Kentucky and just say, screw it. <laughs> and if he did that, that would be devastating beyond belief. I would rather have McCord just go to the NBA rather than transfer to a... Uh, a, uh, a blue blood school or a division one school or a school in the power six conference. That would be beyond devastating for HBCU schools. That means it would have failed. That experiment would have failed worse than anybody could have imagined. So man, it's just, it just sucks. The season for both McCord and Howard has been a complete and utter disaster, which means for HBCU schools in general, it a complete and utter disaster. Just horrible. He was supposed to be an impact player. He would turn around the fortunes of a team that won just four games last season. Howard hadn't had a winning season since 2001-2002, y'all. They hadn't made the tournament since 1990-flipping two. The school with the most attractive, sexy, beautiful women walking on that campus in any college campus in any part of the country is at Howard University. If you don't believe me, I don't give a damn who you are. Hispanic, Asian, white, I don't give a damn who you are. Go on that campus and walk around. I haven't walked on that campus in decades, but I remember when my man, Mikel Davis, went to that school and I just kind of, uh, 
joined him for a couple of days because I wanted to get that atmosphere of being on an HBCU campus and being in an HBCU classroom and hanging around HBCU females and being in the D.C. area and going to events like the Inner Caucus and going to events by the NAACP and going down to celebrities and going down to the clubs in D.C. where, you know, folks from Howard would show up and party and all those type of things. Females were off the hook fucking gorgeous. And I cannot believe that almost three decades later, anything would change. I'm quite sure of the females at Howard are smart, beautiful, incredible uh, human beings. So I, I, I can't understand, don't understand why they can't be more relevant in sports. In fact, I remember John Thompson, the great John Thompson, the legendary John Thompson, he, he would say this all the time. Man, when I got a recruit, when a recruit came to visit, you know where I, you, one place that he would definitely go to would be Howard. Yeah, you know, he, the, the, the selling point was, take a look at these females. Take a look at these females that you're going to be around. Because Georgetown, back in the day, it was lily white. You go up, uh, up and down M Street, right in the uh, heart of the, uh, you know, where Georgetown is. You know, if, if the students were going to hang out and party and do all those type of things, go to the clubs and everything, down on, down on M Street, right around Wisconsin and Massachusetts Avenue. That was all white, lily white. You ain't see a black folks for anywhere down there. So Thompson was like, well, I mean, why am I going to go ahead with these guys and um, show them that show them that spot? Take them down to Howard. Take them to an event at Howard. Take them to a party that's being sponsored by Howard. And a lot of the kids from D.C. who Thompson was recruiting, they were from D.C. in the areas where, yeah, if you wanted to go ahead and do some things, you, wanted, you went ahead and you... uh party right down near Georgia Avenue and Howard. So I, uh, I, uh, I, uh, don't understand why, again, HBCUs, especially Howard in those places, can't be more relevant when it comes to sport. Football, I understand. Budgets and everything like that, understood. But man, basketball, I, I, I just don't get it. And this was supposed to be the moment where, you know what? We can start with the building. And the building. And it's going to take some time, but... The trick that the drops were, were going to become trickles, which was going to be called a small stream, and who would have known from there? And they blew it. Only moment in time where HBCU basketball programs could become relevant, and I think they blew it. And I don't know when the opportunity like this is going to be uh, happening again, because after McCourt announced he was going to Howard, Mikey Williams, who's the number three prospect in the Class of 2023, he included five HBCU programs in his top 10. I haven't taken a look in the kid 2023. Who flipping knows where he's going to be after this, right? So it's a, it's a um, coin toss of what's going to be happening. And look, McCora announced during the heights of the BLM movement and the murder of George Floyd by the domestic terrorists, a.k.a. the local police down there in Minnesota, so, look, every, tensions were high. Everybody was, you know, Black Lives Matter movement fever and everything like that. So, who knows, man? Mikey Williams, I mean, we're talking about someone 2023 class. So, we're talking about a kid who's still, you know, deep in his teenage, teenage years. And we know about teenagers. We were teenagers once. So, look, man, our thoughts and our feelings and our emotions can go from, can, can go from one extreme to the next. We're teenagers. We're supposed to be knucklehead losers during this time. In terms of that the deal. But how will this season impact his 
and other four and five star high school recruits thinking about going to an HBCU school. Has the emotion worn off? Because, you know, that's kind of like what we do. We're all gung-ho. Hey, this, that, the other. This is going to be great. This, that, the other. And then, you know, time time just kind of moves on and something else happens. And, you know, for these guys, it's like, man, George Floyd, I can't believe that shit. We're marching. We're protesting. We're doing all these things. Black Lives Matter. This, that, and the other. Treat us like a man. Blah, 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 blah. And all of a sudden, Coach Krzyzewski calls and you're like, hmm, okay. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to go to HBCU. I'm going to represent him. I'm going to keep it real. John Calipari's on the phone and he wants to offer me a, uh, a, um, a scholarship. Um, are there any HBCU schools in Kentucky that maybe, you know, on the weekends I can come visit while I'm playing basketball for, for Calipari? I mean, I'm only going to go there in one year or six months because I want to go to the NBA. So, so that's the deal. That's the deal. And I, I don't know exactly what's going to happen. I don't know exactly what the ramifications are, but all I know is that the HBCU schools missed a great opportunity, missed a great opportunity. The SWAC, the MEAC, and you got this NCAA tournament, big fucking deal. The SWAC and MEAC are the two Division One conferences comprised mainly of uh, HBCU schools that are routinely ranked among the worst men's basketball leagues in the country. The conference champions are always sent to Dayton to play in the first round, the first four. You can't even consider that to be a the part of the tournament. Those are for the four worst automatic qualifiers and the four the worst four at-large teams each year. So since the first four was added to the tournament in 2011, at least one HBCU school has been sent there every season, every season. From 2011 to 2017, it was either the MEAC or the SWAC championship, Go, champion, going on down. And if they would get past that, congratulations, you're going to play the number one team in the country. Just to make sure that we get your asses out of there uh, pronto, ASAP. The last two years, Speaking about the play-in game, the SWAC and the MEAC, they sent both of them, both of the champions. So even the champion from the SWAC and the MEAC couldn't even get in that at-large bid. Both of them had to go to the play-in game. That's what the NCAA tournament and those guys thought about them. So it's all about the finances, man. The USA published a report from, I think, 2016, 2017, showed 230 schools. Uh, reporting as far as the revenue is concerned, out of the 230 schools, the nine of the bottom 12 were from the HBCUs. Football, you can't make it like that. This pandemic now, I don't know what uh, these schools are going to do without that extra money from getting their asses beaten football and basketball by the Power 5 conferences and by the schools with a lot more money who want to bring in these uh, HBCU schools to beat up on at the glorified scrimmage. I don't know what's going to happen to these guys, but it should be easier, much easier, infinitely easier for a basketball program to uh, make that rise, to move that, to move up. But because of what happened, whether I don't know who to blame it on, I can't blame it on the university. You can't blame it on the players. Don't know if you can blame it on the coach. I don't know who to blame it on, but damn, I feel in the end, the one opportunity for the HBCU schools to really make a mark and can really uh, start the journey for them to be irrelevant. I think their time with the McCord maker situation, they missed the opportunity.
Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. The final segment of the podcast. I'm glad that you stuck around. Hope that you were enthralled. Hope that you enjoyed this. I hope that you were entertained. Do I entertain you? Do I make you laugh? Do I make you laugh like a fucking clown? If that's what it is. All right, a lot of things to get into as we finish up. Um, As we know, as you know, hopefully you know, if you don't, let me tell you, Black History Month, the month of February here in the racist, divided, selfish, ignorant states of America. So we are celebrating Black History Month. Today, I want to give a special dedication, a belated happy 85th birthday to the great Jim Brown. His birthday was yesterday, February 17th. Mr. Brown is considered... If not the greatest football player of all time, one of the greatest athletes of all time. You, you know, this guy is the only athlete in the past century to be considered the best player in that sport of all time in two different uh, deals. Not only was he considered an all-time great football player, he was also considered an all-time great lacrosse player. I think he's in the football, well, I know he's in the football, but I think he's in the lacrosse Hall of Fame also. So I think only Jim Thorpe can come close to that distinction. Yes, Bo Jackson, baseball, football, yes. Deion Sanders, baseball, football, yes. Danny Ainge, baseball and football, yes. Tim Tebow, never mind. Never mind him. But, uh, you know, when it comes to the Hall of Fame, Brown is uh, in two um, sports Hall of Fame. So I think when we talk about dominance, and I think because Jim Brown was playing in the 1960s, and I know Folks now who do podcasts, I know they think that sports really started in the uh, 21st century or maybe in the 1990s. So, you know, anything past, anything before 1980 is considered archaic and, you know, no good and everything like that. But when you're just speaking about dominance, when you're speaking about any type of era where an athlete dominated his sport, uh, you can talk about Tom Brady with the seven championship rings. You can talk about uh, Michael Jordan with the six championship rings. You can talk about Derek Jeter, what he did, how many championships he won, World Series that he won with the New York, New York Yankees. You can talk about Melio Lemieux. You can talk about Wayne Gretzky. You can talk about Sidney Crosby. You can talk about all of those great hockey players. I don't know if anybody, maybe outside of Gretzky, I don't know if anybody dominated their sport, professional team, professional sport, more than Jim Brown did when he was playing in the 1960s with the Cleveland Browns in the uh, in that era of uh, NFL football. And if you want to take a look at who he was and what he was all about back then when you're speaking about the athletic gifts that he had, a man who was 6 feet 2, weighed 230 pounds, chiseled muscle and all those type of things, the equivalent of what Jim Brown would be today as a running back in the NFL, if you want to equate that to what he was and how dominated he was and how dominating he was just physically from, uh, if you want to compare it to today's football, it's almost like if there was a running back 
who had the attributes, physical attributes of LeBron James in terms of height and size and weight and strength and girth, only even more in terms of strength and girth and everything. You're, you're speaking about a running back, about 6'8", 275 pounds, who can run the 40 and about 4'2", smart, knew how to read blocking schemes and all those type of things. That's what Jim Brown would be. So for those who can't wrap their brains around the physical dominance that Jim Brown was back in the 1950s, if you just want to equate it to what he would look like today in this generation and this evolution of human beings, you're taking a look at, like I said, a bigger, stronger, faster LeBron James going up the, going up against the guy that we have today. So if you take a look at the accomplishments that Brown had, the NFL Rookie of the Year winner in 1957, nine-time Pro Bowler from 1965, excuse me, 1957 to 1965, eight-time, 13-All-Pro, 1957 to 1961, 1963 to 1965, three-time AP NFL Most Valuable Player, 1957, 1958, 1965, eight-time NFL rushing leader. 57 to 61, 63 to 65, five-time rushing touchdown leader, 57 through 59, 63, and then 65. Remember, he only played nine years. Other accomplishments made the 1960s All-Decade Team, the 50th Anniversary All-Time Team, the 75th NFL Anniversary All-Time Team, and of course, the 100th Anniversary All-Time Team. And I don't give a damn, I I, I think... In 200 years, he'll be making the NFL 300th anniversary all-time team, just like Jerry Rice, just like Tom Brady. So, I mean, you know, one of the most recognized. And, and of course, when we're speaking about numbers, we talk, take a look at 755, 714. All the numbers normally are reserved for baseball, right? And their importance. Well, I think the most recognized number in, in NFL, in the NFL, is 12,312 which is the amount of yards that Jim Brown had throughout his nine-year playing career. I think he averaged like 106 yards per game in the uh, games that he played on average. So Jim Brown, man, got unbelievable. And, and, and how about this? He was the number six pick in the 1957 draft. And you're thinking to yourself, who in the holy hell decided it was a better idea to select someone else other than Jim fucking Brown, who was just as dominant in college at Syracuse in terms of this wasn't someone who snuck up on somebody. This this wasn't Tom Brady who didn't get any playing time. And because of that, he slid. This wasn't Terrell Davis who lasted into the sixth round because of uh, death chart and all those type of depth chart and all those type of things. Jim Brown was the man, the, 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 half a second that he walked on campus and when he finally got an opportunity to show how great he was, I mean, he was widely regarded as one of the greatest football players who ever came out of college football in the wild. And the fact of the time that he lived in, he didn't even get the, he didn't even get the Heisman Trophy. That award went to Paul Horning. So when Paul Horning is talked about, God rest his soul, but when Paul Horning is talked about as the Heisman Trophy winner, that's bullshit to the F degree. So the only reason why Paul Horning got that uh, award back in 1957 was because he was white and he played for Notre Dame. Notre Dame didn't even have a winning record the year that Paul Horning won the Heisman Trophy. They gave it to him because he played for Notre Dame and he was white. That's the reason why. Jim Brown clearly was the best player in college football and had the stats, had the numbers, had the respect, 
had the uh, resume to uh, show it. It was just because of the color of their skin. Ernie Davis was the uh, first player who wore number 44, just like Brown did in college. 1963, 62, somewhere around there, I think. He was the first black uh, player to win the Heisman Trophy. But uh, Jim Brown, by a country mile, should have won that. So coming into the uh, draft, he was drafted number six by the Cleveland Browns. Again, you would think this would be a no-brainer in terms of who would you select number one. But Paul Horning was picked number one. Then there was John Arnett. Yeah, me neither. I don't know who he is. John Brody, Ron Kramer, Kramer versus Kramer, and then Len Dawson. All those guys. And look, Horning's in the Hall of Fame. Len Dawson's in the Hall of Fame. Horning won the Super Bowl. Len Dawson won the Super Bowl. Arnett, Brody, Kramer, they all made Pro Bowls. But... Are you going to compare any of those guys to Jim Brown? Are you going to justify? Oh, yeah. Okay, well, I can see where they were coming from. If uh, Could you imagine Jim Brown on the Green Bay Packers with Vince Lombardi? Jeez. So, yeah. Jim Brown, unbelievable. And you also have to think, in sports history, that Jim Brown had the greatest final season in team sports history in this country, if you really think about it. He last played, he was 29 years old, his last season was 1965. That season, he won his third MVP. He ran for 1,544 yards, which was the second highest of his career. He averaged 110 yards per game, which was third highest in his career. And he scored 17 touchdowns, which tied the most for his career. And he led Cleveland to an 11-3 record in the NFL championship game where they lost to the uh, Green Bay Packers 23-12 at Lambeau Field the year before they had beaten the Baltimore Colts 27 to nothing in Cleveland in the championship game. So, man, when he retired, I mean, he retired at his peak. Now, because of the amount of money that these athletes are making today, it would be almost mind-bogglingly outrageous for someone to uh, retire at the height of his powers. But that's that's never going to happen again. Yeah, Barry Sanders retired when he had an opportunity to break um, Walter Payton's record and everything. But Barry Sanders, what I believe was in year like 12 or 13 or something like that. And Barry Sanders was not at the peak of his powers. Um, Calvin Johnson, he retired from the Lions because he got tired of organization and losing. He was past the peak of his career. Got to remember, Jim Brown was right in his prime. Not slightly past, not two years past, not past, but yet he's still good. No, Jim Brown was at his peak, was at his best, and he decided enough was enough. It would it would have been like Jordan. Well, Jordan retired and he came back. But if Jordan would have stayed retired, the first time he quit or the first time he wanted to go ahead and uh, play baseball, if he just would have done that and never played basketball again, that's the only thing that could equate to what Jim Brown did. Unflippin' believable. So when he retired, he was the league's record holder in uh, single season yards, most uh, yards in a single season. He had 1,863 in 1963. He was the career rushing leader with 12,312 yards, as well as the all-time leading rusher in touchdowns. He had 106 total touchdowns, 126, and all-purpose yards, 15,549. And was the first player to reach 100 yards, uh, 100 rushing touchdowns. I think that's. Uh, I think that lasted until Damian Tomlinson uh, went ahead and broke it. So, so basically, Jim Brown was the Wilt Chamberlain of the 
NBA, of the uh, NFL. Just as dominant, just as strong, numbers put up ridiculous, all those type of things. And when you speak about if that legacy wasn't enough, what made him even greater, what made him an American icon, what made him American hero despite his flaws, his personal flaws, what made him so relevant, what made him so impactful on society, not only when he was playing, but after he was playing, during his post-retirement and the effects, positive effects that he had, the impact that he had on his on this environment, on this society, in this country, why it's going to be felt long after he's gone is because of his strength, because of his conviction, because of his stubbornness. I remember listening to a story on a documentary about Jim Brown where Art Modell, of course, while he was still living, told the story where Brown was out playing golf and he was playing golf against a hustler, you know, one of these hustling pros. And, you know, Brown was losing money and Brown was losing, you know, that, that, that thing. So Modell came to him and was like, Jim, you know that guy that you're playing golf with? He's a hustler, he's a hustler man. He's a pro. He's ripping you off for everything you've got. And Brown was like, I don't give a damn. I'll beat him anyway. His stubbornness. You know, his ability to believe that, you know what, I want to get past. I'm going to get through anything. And he had one of the most successful post-football retirements in sports history as I mentioned before, in terms of social impact. He became a, a groundbreaker and a leading man in Hollywood. He became um, Hollywood's first black action movie star. He was The Rock before The Rock. He was Stallone before Stallone. He was Schwarzenegger before Schwarzenegger. He was, he was Clint Eastwood before Clint Eastwood. He was Charles Bronson before Bronson. And he was the second black movie star only behind Sidney Poitier. And it was interesting because you take a look at the dichotomy of Poitier and Brown, the impact that they had on the movie industry and the, and the, and the image that they brought towards white and black people towards each one of those communities. Sidney was the polished one. Sidney was the articulate, educated one. I mean, he was smooth. He was debonair. He presented an image to white folks where... It was almost unrealistic that all of the movies, especially when you uh, take a look at um, the movie Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, groundbreaking. You know, the thing with Portier was, and Sidney Pollack, the one who produced and wrote the movie and directed the movie, or the one who was, you know, in charge of the movie, he made it so, and Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, because it focused on interracial relationships. Uh, um, oh, 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 Spencer Tracy, Mark... Uh, 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 Catherine Hepburn uh, also co-starred in that. The thing was is that the the writer of that movie wanted to make the character of Poitier's character so perfect, so unbelievable that the only thing the audience could uh, focus on was the relationship, was the interracial relationship that they were having. So you know, Sydney had to be the character had to be. Flawless, had to be perfect because if not, they could be like, well, you know, they could concentrate on other things and not concentrate what the uh, movie was really about. Kind of similar to what we have to what we have to deal with today. You know, black folks have to be absolutely perfect, or such things as police brutality and discrimination and oppression and all those type of things uh, by the white community. For a lot of the part, gets kind of pushed to the white pushed to the uh, wrong side. 
pushed to the white side, get pushed to the background, because with every police brutality case, with every discrimination case, there's a yeah, but. Well, the guy was wearing a hoodie. Yeah, well, the guy was wearing tattoos. Well, the guy looked at him wrong. Well, the guy was a former criminal. Well, the guy was breaking the law. Well, the guy shouldn't have been on this side of the road. Well, the guy shouldn't have been doing this. Well, he should could have um, acquiesced to the police. He should have done this. He should have done that. Well, he was a former drug dealer. Well, he used drugs. Well, he didn't pay child support. Well, he was divorced. Well, he got a C when he was in the sixth grade in the science class. I mean, you know, too many white folks are going to come up with something to excuse or to uh, mitigate or to um, uh, uh, justify why this black person was discriminated against. No, the police shot him 15 times, even though he didn't have a weapon and he had his hands up. It wasn't because the police were being racist. I mean, the police have a tough job. The police are, you know, their, their lives are in danger all the time. And the call to uh, do this, it was in a rough neighborhood. It was in a bad neighborhood. And uh, the guy looked at him mean. And the guy that they were looking to uh, deal with, I mean, he turned his back on him. And we don't know. He gave him a mean look. I mean, all of these other bullshit excuses to justify why... This man was killed, this man was murdered, this man was discriminated against, all this type of things. No, it can't be racist, it has to be another reason. Getting all the way back to uh, Poitier's version of guests who's coming to dinner and the character, Pollock wanted to erase all of that nonsense. So no, you couldn't get on him for this, no, you couldn't mitigate it for that, no, you couldn't uh, make an excuse for this, that, and the other. He had to be perfect. So those are the type of role that Portia had to play, especially when he was dealing with white folks. If you remember the fantastic, unbelievable, tear-jerking movie, Patch of Blue, starring Elizabeth Hartman, uh, where Hartman was a blind girl who was being abused by Shelley Winters, who won an Oscar, and she was befriended by uh, Portier and, you know, they fell in love or she fell in love with him and Portier's like, well, I don't think that's really a good idea because she's like, why? Because I'm, because you're colored? And he's like, well, how did you know that? And she was like, I don't give a damn if you're colored or not. You know, you're a great guy and I'm in love with you and this, that, and the other. So it was always a situation where Portier, to make it acceptable to white folks, had to be perfect. Now, I'm this is nothing to take away from Portier, all-time great actor, pioneer, all of those type of things. But he had to play a certain role that got to get his foot into the door. Jim Brown, on the other hand, he played that action hero. He played the guy that was going to whoop some ass and take the names and uh, whoop up on Whitey and don't give a damn. He was a badass. You know, he played that role. He played roles that were more, shall we say, urban. And because of that. So, you know, he was he played... Characters that were far from perfect. So you got that dichotomy in terms of which one did you want? Did you want the Poitier version or do you want the Jim Brown version? In fact, the black community back in 1967, if you remember, and if you do remember, boy, are you old. But in 1967, Poitier had three films. Heat of the Night, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, and um, To Serve with Love. Three of the best movies I think I've ever seen. After 67... I mean, the black community, I think it was Ebony Magazine or a black publication just gave a scathing uh, report or just a scathing story on Sidney um, um, Poitier talking about, 
you know, he's just, you know, basically he's a flunky for the white man. He's playing white type characters and he's playing unrealistic characters. And he's putting us in a bad light because, you know, he, he you know, he, he's playing these characters where he's perfect. And these white folks who don't know anything about black folks expect us to be perfect. And when we're not perfect, that just adds more to the discrimination. You got to remember this is 1967. So it just adds on more to the discrimination and they totally ignored the fact of the contributions that Portier made to the civil rights movement and just how hard he had to fight, scratch and claw just to be in the position that he was and the characters and the roles that he got to put himself in those type of positions. The article completely ignored those type of things and uh, basically just, just destroyed them for the roles that he was taking. And they compared him to Jim Brown. Like, no, see, unlike, you know, Jim Brown, where Jim Brown is playing these characters which are much more relatable to black folks and this, that, and the other, and speaks more about what black folks are all about. Portier is negative, 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 negative. So, you know, it was another deal where Brown, just like Portier, when he would go onto these sets, whether it be the Dirty Dozen or any of these other, you know, big time budget promotions and movies was a situation where he was the only black person on the set. And when I'm talking about black person on the set, I mean, I'm talking about black person in the area. There weren't nothing. Camera people, gophers, nothing in terms of black folks uh, anywhere near Hollywood doing anything in Hollywood. Production assistance, nothing. So when Jim Brown's like Portier got to the scene, he was like, okay, there's no black folks here except for me. This has got to change, and I'm going to change it. Just like he did when he was a football player. You know, I'm going to do some things, and I'm going to change it. I'm going to use my presence. I'm going to use my impact. I'm going to use my intellect. I'm going to use my intelligence. I'm going to use the power that I have of being the baddest motherfucker on this, in this, uh, on this team and on this earth to uh, get things done. And I'm not going to be uh, taking insults. I'm not going to be taking a backseat to nobody. So, you know, I'm not acquiescing. I'm not going to be a good Negro. I'm not going to be that house Negro. I'm not going to just shut up and run the football. My voice concerning these matters and how we're being treated as black folks will be heard. And it'll be heard with force. It'll be heard with determination. And it'll be heard without, without an ounce of fear. And that's what Jim Brown did. He did that when he was playing football. And he did that in the, in the movie industry. So he made a change in two fields, football and in Hollywood. So when he uh, made that movie, what was it, 100 Rifles in 1969 of his, uh, his first Western, Brown was billed over co-star Raquel Welch, who was just sexy beyond belief, and Burt Reynolds. And Brown and Raquel Welch had a love scene, which was the first interracial love scene, which you know blew everybody's mind especially down there in the good states of Alabama, Mississippi, and all them fucking stupid-ass places, places blew their minds down there. But, you know, my favorite movie of Brown was something called Tick, Tick, Tick. That was a good movie. Something similar to uh, what In the Heat of the Night was all about. But uh, that was a really good movie. I enjoyed that. So, you know, he was one of the leaders, if you're speaking about Jim Brown, one of the leaders to inter integrate the uh, movie industry. And with his social, uh, social activism, in 1988, he founded the American Program, which currently works with juveniles caught up in gang scenes in Los Angeles and Cleveland through the American Program. He takes these guys, turn them, turns, them, uh, turns them around. He works with those in the prison systems, you know, teaches life management skills, and then afterwards gives them opportunities to uh, earn a living. 
He was one of the leaders in getting other powerful athletes together to show support for Muhammad Ali, who was refusing to enter the draft in June of 1967. He got Bobby Mitchell and Bill Russell and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and Willie Davis and John Wooten and Curtis McClinton. They all came down. If you remember that famous picture, that was the uh, Ali. Uh, that was the uh, Ali Summit. I think that's what they called it. So he's done a lot, man. I mean, he's done a whole lot to clean up L.A. I mean, they were talking about, hey, man, he would go. Jim Brown would go into the areas of L.A. where even the police wouldn't go because it was too dangerous. Jim Brown would go down there and get these gang members and get these guys to come up to his house in the Hollywood Hills. And they would discuss, you know, the Bloods and the Crips. Those guys, those gang members, those gang bangers, they would go up to Jim Brown's house and they would talk and Brown would listen. And after those guys would have their say and their understanding and their speaking, then Brown would go ahead and do his thing. And one of the reasons why I've always said Bill Belichick is always welcome to any one of our barbecues is because Bill Belichick has always been a staunch proponent of the American program. And he has put his time and his money and his influence into helping that, uh, that's, uh, that program that Jim Browns has. And Bill Belichick has been in those meetings in the Hollywood Hills at Jim Brown's house with these gangbangers and these ex-cons and these thugs and these gang members. Not giving advice, not showing his white privilege, not talking about, well, you know, I went to this school and I went to this prestigious university and I know these smart people, so let me tell you how it's all about. No, Bill Belichick was there to listen and to learn and to lend support. And uh, like I said, that was before Bill Belichick became the great Bill Belichick. And even when he did, he continued to uh, help with the American program. So, yeah, I'm, uh, uh, you know, I'm always going to be down with Bill Belichick uh, in terms of that situation. So, yeah, Bill Russell, and not only Bill Russell, but uh, Jim Brown is uh, a guy who uh, huge impact with his social activism. And, yeah, he's had his missteps. He's had his mistakes. You know, he's had domestic violence issues, issues with women. 1965, he was arrested in his hotel room for assault and battery against an 18-year-old named Brenda Ayers, who was later, she was, uh, he was later acquitted of those charges. A year later, he fought paternity allegations that he fathered uh, her chil- one of her uh, ch- children. 1968, he was charged with assault with intent to commit murder after model Eva Braun Chin was found beneath a balcony of Brown's second floor apartment. I remember this one. This was the one where he basically threw a woman off a balcony. Not the greatest. The charges were later dismissed after Bo Chin refused to cooperate with the prosecutor's office. Yeah, I would say so. Brown was ordered to pay a $3,000 fine for striking the deputy sheriff involved in the investigation during the incident. That was the worst one. That was pretty bad. That was, in fact, that was really horrible. But in 1999, Brown was arrested and charged with making terroristic threats toward his wife, then Monique, who's a lot younger than he is. I mean, a whole lot. Later that year, he was found guilty of vandalism for smashing Monique's uh, car with a shovel. He was sentenced to three years probation, one year of domestic violence counseling, and 400 hours of community service, or 40 hours on a work crew along with an $1,800 fine. Brown was like, I don't pick up trash, man. I'm Jim fucking Brown. I ain't picking up nobody's trash. So when he did that, he was um, sentenced to jail for six months. Served three. So that's Jim Brown, man. That's Jim Brown. 
Not perfect. I remember a story, a Cleveland Brown uh, dealer, uh, a plane dealer, a writer. He was doing an interview with Brown, and I think he had a female there. And I think the female said something, and Brown kind of glazed, kind of glanced at her or glared at her and said, I don't keep you around to talk. Jeez. <laughs> so it's like, it's like, jeez. But the totality of his life, and the things that he's done. And he's like, hey, you know what? I, I I have made some mistakes. And the thing that I used to get on Brown about was every time these things came up, it was always the police are out to get me. White man's out to get me. Everybody's out to get me. I mean, you finally come to the point that, you know what? Look, some of those were bullshit, but I do cop to some of those being my fault. It was, you know, horrible on me and this, that, and the other. So because of the work that he's done, because of all the things that he's done to help out our society, help out the communities, all right. All right, all right. I'm, I'm, I'm. I'll forgive. Won't forget. But you know, the man is 85 years old, so I don't think that Jimmy B is going to be doing anything crazy anymore. And he said that he has conditioned his mind to uh, not even go there in terms of wanting to inflict violence. Again, when you're in the physical condition that Jim Brown is in, uh, you know, I mean, even if you do get superheated, what are you going to do unless you have some type of weapon? So. You know, that's the deal, man. So, I mean, special dedication going out to the legend, the American icon, the great Jim Brown and everything that he's done as an athlete, as an activist, as a public citizen, everything that he's done. A remarkable life. Absolutely remarkable life. All right, man, I'm done. I'm done. Finally. Taking a look at these tour dates. Oh, I forgot to mention the tour dates. I always like to keep up here. Otis Redding's tour dates. Do you realize that in 1965, as of right now, Otis was probably back in Macon chilling? Or he was probably in Memphis at Stacks, cutting a couple of records. He finished a February 6th and 7th date at the Island Club in Miami. Two shows on the bill located on 1000 Northwest Avenue in Miami. Then on the 19th, which would be tomorrow, he started... A one-week gig at the Apollo, supporting the Miracles and Etta James, Johnny Taylor, Bonnie McClure, and, and Fenella Bass. Rescue me, I want you in my arms, rescue me. That was in 1965. Then in 1966, tomorrow he was at the, he was at Randolph-Macon College, the Blackwell Auditorium in Ashland, Virginia. So the itinerary for the show, this was interesting. The itinerary was the band was going to get there by 1.30, set up, get ready to go. The concert was going to go from 2 to 4, and the cost of the show was $1,500. The deposit was $750, and the remaining balance to be paid when he got there was $750. So there we go, $1,500 for a gig, and you got to remember Otis is working a lot of dates, had to pay for the band and all those type of things, but still, back then in 1966, pretty good stuff, pretty good stuff. All right. Again, I want to thank you for listening to my uh, podcast. Stay, stay safe. Continue to uh, work toward unity, togetherness. Is that the thing that you're doing? Um, you know the good news. You know about Rush Limbaugh dying. Hey, man. You know it's. I've always said when you cannot get a bigot off this earth, a racist piece of shit bigot, the world becomes a better place. And when the world can become a better place, why should we sorrow? Why should we be feeling down? We should be happy. It's a glorious day. It's a fantastic day. 
So Rush Limbaugh was a fucking bigot. He was an asshole. He was a racist. He was a misogynistic pig. He was a pill-popping asshole. So who did nothing except to ingratiate himself and get himself rich off the fools of others, off the, uh, you know, counting the fools that believe the bullshit and the racist shit that he said. So when someone like that dies, why should anybody feel sad? Why should anybody feel uh, down and out? Not a time for sorrow. It's a time for celebration. I was one happy motherfucker, and when I found out my day, my day was made when I found out that motherfucker died. Fuck him. Rest in piss, you piece of shit motherfucker. Hopefully, a couple more of your clowns will follow you. So there you go. So that's the end of the show. As I speak about unity and harmony. Hey, you know what? That 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 became a lot better. Our chances just became a lot better now that that asshole is burning in hell where he belongs. All right, I want to thank you very much for listening to the, my show. Hey, you know what? Listen to my podcast. And when you listen to my podcast, rate, review, and subscribe, whether it be on Apple iTunes or anywhere where you listen to your podcast. I got a unique podcast here. It's entertaining, thought-provoking, insightful, long-winded, all of those things. So go ahead and do that. Download, subscribe, rate, review my podcast. Because let me tell you something as I end. If you don't do those things, if you do not download and subscribe and rate and review my podcast, if you don't, you'll make me angry. You'll make me very angry. And please, don't make me angry. You wouldn't like me when I'm angry. Music. <laughs>